You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you you for listening Christopher Media let's make some noise Mommy's going to the beauty parlor, darling. But I'm leaving you with your favorite friend, Roger. He's going to take very, very good care of you. Because if he doesn't, he's going back to the science lab. wrong with that take? Nothing with you, baby Herman. You were great. You were perfect. You were better than perfect. Just Roger. He keeps blowing his lines. Roger. What's this? A tweeting bird. Tweeting bird. Roger, read the script. Look what it says. It says rabbit gets clunked. Rabbit sees stars. Who's not birds? Stars. Can we lose the playback, please? You're killing me. Killing me. But crying out loud, Roger. How the hell many times do we have to do this damn scene? Raul, I'll be in my trailer. Taking a nap! Excuse me, Please, Raul, I can give you stars! Just drop the refrigerator in my head one more time! Roger, I dropped it on your head 23 times already! I can take it, don't worry about me! I'm not worried about you, I'm worried about the refrigerator! This is the tale of an up-and-coming movie star named Roger Rabbit and a down-and-out private detective stay named Eddie Valiant Ooga Booga! Every moment they were together... A new adventure in trouble. Hide me, Eddie! It's a motion picture about friendship. Please, Eddie! Don't tell me I'm making a big mistake! Love. Compassion. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I yanked your ears. All the time you yanked my ears? Murder. Marvin Acme. The rabbit cacked him last night. Remember, you never saw me. Sex. I'd do anything for my husband, Mr. Valiant. Anything. And violence. Tunes gets him every time. You wouldn't have any idea where the rabbit might be? Got a thing for rabbits, huh? The whole thing stinks like yesterday's diapers. It's a comedy a little different from all the rest. I'm a pig! I'm a tomb! I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. But tell me, Eddie, is that a rabbit in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? Touchstone Pictures and Steven Spielberg present a Robert Zemeckis film. We tunes may act idiotic, but we're not stupid. Who framed Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Sashu. Shave and haircut, two bits. Also back in the booth is Mr. Axel Kohagen. Hi, I've actually met the Feebles. This week we are looking at the 1988 animated live-action hybrid Who Framed Roger Rabbit. 
Directed by Robert Zemeckis, the film is based very loosely on a book by Gary K. Wolf. It tells the tale of Eddie Valiant, a hard-boiled detective who gets hired by the head of a movie studio, R.K. Maroon, to take some photos of the titular Roger Rabbit's wife playing patty cake with the head of a place called Toontown. It's the story of intrigue, murder, and animation. Now, this movie is a mystery, so I want to warn folks that there will be spoilers galore in this 31-year-old film. Chris, when was the first time you saw Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and what did you think? When my family moved from San Francisco to Texas, we lived in a small town called Richardson. Not so small anymore, but I would have been like four or five. I remember seeing it on like a VHS. We watched a VHS of it at like a babysitter's house, and... Anyone my age, I mean, look, I'm 29. And so I, you know, the movie came out before I was even born. So when I saw it, I think a lot of people my age come to this same conclusion that, you know, Judge Doom scares the shit out of everybody. If you're a kid, I mean, he is, he is a, is a perfect villain for this film. And Christopher Lloyd is perfectly cast as him. And I remember being mortified, scared out of my mind by Christopher Lloyd as Judge Doom but loving everything else about it. So I loved it the first time I saw it and I love it now. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great film. It's an interesting film. It's, it has a lot of parts in it that haven't aged well, but that's a technology thing. But I loved it, you know, 25 years ago when I saw it and I love it now as, you know, as a, as an adult. So I I think it's, I think it's an interesting movie and I, I still have a very much an affinity for it. The nostalgia has worn off a little bit, but I still like it a lot. How about you, Axel? I saw it in the theater, and I remember one of the major fast food chains, it might have been McDonald's, had a tie-in 32-ounce soda pop cup, so I was excited that this was going to be a big event, this was going to be a movie, it's a cartoon, cartoons are fun, and I went to see it, and I came out of it really liking it, but also feeling a little bit uncomfortable because of the, the thematic frightening elements, and I remember the look on my mom's face of not being sure if she had made the right decision. And I kind of liked that it was just right on that edge. Yeah. It's one of those films that like the watching it now really kind of analyzing it. It is a lot darker than I even remember it being, especially like upfront later in the film. It kind of, the tone really takes a, a turn, but at the beginning it's very noir and, and dark and serious and an adult film. And this is one of the probably many points I'll say. I really miss the moments where Robert Zemeckis just brought it and and made a great movie because I feel like he's someone who's capable of producing something amazing and then turning around and just sort of handing in his like thematic essay at the end of class. Yeah, I agree. I think that the question that I know is on my mind and it's on your mind, Axel, is uh, Mike. When did you see it, and what do you think of Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Well, I'm also an old man, like Axel is, apparently, because I also saw this at the theater. I might be a little older. I think I saw this when I was 16, so I think I was too old for this movie. The technological advances of this film were just shoved down my throat. Like Everywhere I turned, it was like, oh my god! animation with live actors this is crazy and then as life went on i was just like they've been doing that forever they've been doing that 
since like animation and moving pictures were around. So kind of chafed under that whole idea. I don't really like this movie. And it's that question that we were kind of skirting around as far as who is this movie made for? It's like, there's some adult stuff to it. And then there's a lot of kids stuff to it. And it doesn't seem to really, the tone is too uneven for me. This is during the period of time where Robert Zemeckis still could hit some home runs. But I think by this time he is starting to kind of run out of steam. I would agree a hundred percent. And you and I have had this conversation, Mike, you know, off podcast about Robert Zemeckis and, the the quote unquote decline of Zemeckis. I mean, this is between Back to the Future and Back to the Future Part Two and Three, and past that, you know, Death Becomes Her. I know that that movie has is very popular, but then you have something like Forrest Gump or Contact, and like Castaway, and those movies feel so it feels so rote and one note and so formulaic and by the books. And you have something like Polar Express, which is just like Zemeckis was trying to pull a James Cameron by doing the whole look at the cool technology thing. And you know what? It kind of works for James Cameron, but it definitely doesn't work for Zemeckis. Do you like Back to the Future 2? I haven't seen it recently. I mean, I like the first one, but no shit who doesn't. I remember liking the second one, but I feel like if I watched it, like say we took a pause right now, I went and watched it, came back. My answer would probably be, it's just okay. Right now, I'm saying, sure, I probably remember it a lot more fondly than it is. And Back to the Future Part 3, at least try something different. That's what I remember about the third one. Why is it not good? I remember hating Back to the Future 2 when it came out. So I haven't really seen it since it was at the movie theater. And I do remember liking 3 a lot more than 2, which is weird because I think they shot them back to back, which is they did. also kind of strange since there's such a tonal shift between two and three, but two just, I don't know. I love uh, Crispin Glover. So not having him, having the fake him, having the fake uh, girlfriend, Elizabeth Shue in there. It was just like, okay, if you can't get the original people back, what are you doing? I, you asked who doesn't like the first back to the future. And I'll just, you know, I'll just put my hand up there and say, I have no, to me, the back to the future movies are sort of like, a pile of unseasoned mashed potatoes at the end of a decent buffet where I get they're not hurting anybody, but I don't understand why anyone would select them over other options. You know, and again, you know, I haven't even, not that I'm defending me saying I like Back to the Future, but I haven't seen it in so long that that might be the the way I view it when I come back to it. I think the last time I watched Back to the Future, oh, it was before I met my wife. So like eight years ago now, before I started the podcast thing, which has changed the way I watch movies. So then, like you said, Axel, I was probably enjoying movies in a very kind of hands-off approach. And now I think if I went back and watched it, I might might have the same conclusion because, you know, it's just one of those movies that I think I probably have a higher opinion of it in my mind than maybe in reality. I still love Back to the Future, the first one. And that might be nostalgia coloring me because that was a few years younger when movies were so formative for me. So 
Yeah. Uh, but then going back and watching things like Used Cars and I Want to Hold Your Hand, I mean, those movies really hold up for me, especially Used Cars. Sometimes, even back then, with him and Gail working together, something like 1941 was just such a sour note. But, I mean, this is not the I Want to Hate on Robert Zemeckis podcast. No, if we wanted to do that, we could talk about Beowulf or A Christmas Carol or Flight or Polar Express or What Lies Beneath, a film that some people probably didn't even realize was directed by Roger Zemeckis. Robert, Jesus Christ, Robert Zemeckis. I would stand up for What Lies Beneath as a solid, if, again, kind of mashed potato-y, but it kind of leads into how I would have viewed the entire who friend Roger Rabbit approach, which is this is a horror movie. And I think Robert Zemeckis is at his best when he's doing scary stuff. That man's involvement in the whole Tales from the Crypt franchise was amazing. Mm-hmm. Once you get him with a Tom Hanks and a ridiculous series of quotable lines, he's boring, but you give him something meaty and he's going to give you some blood. As someone who hosts the Tales from the Crypt podcast, you may want to go back and watch some of that show because you're probably remembering it a little bit more nostalgically than you think you are. I rewatched it within the last 10 years, and I'm not because I was, if that makes sense. I was remembering it too nostalgically. Yeah. But I felt like Zemeckis, whenever he did one, there was always a little something about it that felt like, sure, that's all right. Personally, that's the thing about Who Framed Roger Rabbit that is, is a success is that I'm not sure a lot of other directors could bring kind of what Zemeckis brought to it. As a fan of hard-boiled detective stories, I was looking at this more, not necessarily from a horror angle, but more from a a hard-boiled story, and that this is set in 1947, so we're just like a year after the war, which oddly doesn't play into the movie that much as far like the, the setting or anything. We don't hear about the war very much. It's almost as if it didn't take place. But we'll talk about the war a little bit later when we talk about the sequel. And we are put into this world where, like I said, it is Los Angeles, 1947. The central conceit of this movie is that cartoons live amongst us. Though, kind of speaking about World War II, they are kept apparently in in a ghetto called Toontown. And I don't know necessarily the rules as far as when you can leave Toontown and why some are put into Toontown, though I imagine some of the tunes are actually kind of dangerous if they were to be on the outside world. For the most part, they are mostly harmless, kind of like the human race. We have this whole idea of Eddie Valiant as someone who hates tunes getting hired by the head of the studio to take these photographs and try to kind of get Roger Rabbit to realize that his wife is running around on him and then get Roger his head back in the game. Because Roger is the star of, or the co-star of a series of cartoons that he makes with this other character, Baby Herman. Hey, this is Baby Herman. One of the best reveals in this entire movie is the fact that Baby Herman is like a grown adult man in a baby cartoon child's like body. Which is also... To your point, it's horrific. The idea of this 50-year-old man with a three-month-old dinky or whatever it is, it's just like, oh my god, that would be terrible. How you doing, darling? And he smacks a woman on the ass while smoking his stogie. Holy hell, that's horrifying. And he's going under that woman's skirts the first time. It's just like, oh, jeez. It's upsetting. He's He's got his little baby wiener, and he's surrounded by 
lots of things that are attractive to him. And this is sort of like a dry humping Sisyphus, if you will. We get the rug pulled out from under us a little bit because the movie starts as a cartoon. And then we get the moment where we hear the director off screen yell cut. The director played surprisingly enough by Joel Silver. I never really realized that until I rewatched it again recently. And I was surprised. I didn't think that Joel Silver could carry it off, but he does a good job. I kind of wish that he had come back in the movie. I'm there, Mike. I'm with you. Okay. I mean, I mean, he's just not, I mean, he's not in it enough it that way. Right. It's interesting. Uh, I, I was honest to God surprised. It wasn't just Robert Zemeckis, right? Like I felt like if you're going to like be in your own movie, which, you know, there's a precedent for that. It would have been a little kind of fourth wall pointing like, oh, look, Zemeckis is in the cartoon. He's like directing it. I'm surprised they didn't throw a bone to one of the old cartoon directors. I don't know if Tex Avery was alive or dead at this point. I know Chuck Jones was, and he absolutely fucking hated this movie. But, I, you know, get like one of the Freeling brothers, one of those guys as this character. But whatever, that's not for me to, to say. The thing that is for me to say is that Bob Hoskins, I've seen him in a couple things. I really enjoy him in those things. I haven't seen Super Mario Brothers, so that's off the for me. I know, right? Are you serious, Mike? I am very serious. His hold, yeah, his hold on the American accent, not the best hold that I've heard. That is an understatement. He cannot do an American accent in this film. And he's trying to be the gruff detective. And I've seen him be a tough mobster, like in The Long Good Friday. Tough detective with the American accent and stuff isn't necessarily working for me. And he's got this dark backstory. And we don't know exactly what that backstory is until a little bit later on in the film. But it comes up pretty quick that a tune killed his brother. So he has this real hatred of tunes. And I don't know if that necessarily works that our main character... I mean, it gives him an arc, right? That he has to overcome his hatred of tunes to actually love Roger Rabbit and learn how to live with tunes and have a sense of humor and all this kind of stuff, get past his brother's death. So, like I said, it gives him an arc, but I don't know if, if we're to look at tunes as being a lower class, having our main character hate this lower class, I don't know if that really feels good to me. It doesn't bother me i guess i didn't really my issue with hoskins motivation in this film you know hating tunes it's i I don't understand why he i understand why he hates tunes you know baked into the story where his brother got killed by you know christopher lloyd's character but hating roger rabbit like the the payoff at the end where it turned where he's like okay i don't hate tunes anymore it feels like they don't build it up enough that he's actually coming to this realization if that makes sense. It feels like it feels unearned by the end of the movie where he's doing the the little comedy bit at the end to kill the weasels. He's like embracing kind of what what Roger keeps talking about. It just feels slightly unearned, if that makes sense. I'm going to disagree here. And I think that it makes sense because he loved tunes for the longest time. And then and I'm going to slow this down for my own horrific purposes. He watched a screaming, pale, flaming eyed tune break his brother's real human head with a piano. And so I think that his hatred of tunes, it's more associated with that trauma, and he's projecting on all tunes. And I think when he's able to force and then defeat the actual cause of it, which is a tune, 
I, I buy that he's kind of relieved from that. But just imagine if they would have filmed the scene of the brother's death. How quickly would they have slapped an R on this? His death, Acme's death. There's a lot of being smashed by large objects. You couldn't do R.K. Maroon's death now either, I think, because of the sensitivity of showing guns on screen with what kids watch. Do y'all think this would have been better as an R film? I, I mean, it feels it feels a little bit like a film with training wheels in a way, if that makes sense. Like maybe or like a like like a what's it called? Like a restrictor on it. So you can't go above 40 miles an hour because it's a PG, what, PG-13? PG movie? I mean, even then they're pushing the envelope. But I, I can't help but wonder what this movie would have been like if it had been R. That's when Ralph Bakshi would have taken over. I don't think it would have worked as well because I think and I think that's why it works better when it hits at that sweet spot of like 5 or 11 when you're still thinking I know this isn't really happening but when I'm in the theater this is really happening when you're Mike and you watch it when you're 16 you don't really care because you know it's all characters and you're watching it as a story but I think kids particularly they do start to think about those gruesome details and so as I view this as a device for torturing children I think it's very successful in that way, and I support it. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about dark entertainment for kids before on the show. I mean, we talked about uh, The Dark Crystal. And maybe because I saw The Dark Crystal when I was a little younger, I really glommed onto that film because it did hit that sweet spot of scary and fantasy and children's entertainment all at the same time. But with this one, maybe, yeah, because I was a little bit older, it kind of missed the mark. Though... You know, like I said, watching this as a hard-boiled film, it hits the beats. To that, I'm like, okay, this is somewhat successful as far as getting some of those beats in there. And then rewatching again this last time, I I really started to see more of more of a neo noir kind of sensibility to it. Like Eddie Valiant, yes, he has a lot of trauma from his brother dying, and one of the ways that he expresses that is through his alcoholism and I didn't really pick up on the alcoholism when I was younger watching it again now. And yeah, there's the very pointed scene of him throwing up his liquor, you know, pouring out the liquor, throwing it up in the air and shooting the the bottle. But the idea of him being such a lush at the beginning and going for the drink and RK Maroon's uh, uh, office and those kind of things. I miss that. But also the thing that got me too watching it this last time is he's very much like Jake Gitz from Chinatown in that he's working a divorce case, which, you know, in private detective circles is like one of the lowest things that you can do. And him taking those photos of Jessica Rabbit playing patty cake with uh, Marvin Acme, very similar to me to those photos that open up the beginning of Chinatown when Burt Young is looking at those. And again, we've got that fake out as far as when Chinatown opens, we've got the black and white photos. So it looks like it's a black and white movie because the opening credits were so desaturated of color. So it's kind of a nice you know, parallel as far as like, we're going to fake out the audience. One, it's with a cartoon. The other one, it's with you know, these black and white photos. In both cases, we have our main character working a divorce. You know, he doesn't divorce Jessica, but it's pretty much a divorce case, like trying to get him to divorce Jessica. I bet it feels pretty good to play patty cake with Jessica Rabbit. Oh, this and this is where the podcast starts getting uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else sexually attracted to a cartoon voiced by Kathleen Turner? Is it just me? 
Oh, I've been all about Kathleen Turner since I saw her in Romancing the Stone. I'm looking at a mug right now. If that mug was voiced by Kathleen Turner, I would be sexually attracted to that mug. So I don't know if if y'all noticed this, or maybe this was just me, but in that scene where, so you've got Eddie Valley and he takes the pictures of them playing patty cake, which I'm assuming is euphemism for them having sex. Or playing patty cake, sure, fine. And then you see Roger looking at the pictures. Did anyone else notice that Jessica Rabbit looked different? I didn't, actually. She looks completely different than the character we see on screen. And the one one of the issues I do have with the character of Jessica Rabbit is because she's shown face on so like front on so often, she looks weird. Her face looks kind of weird because they didn't decide to like have any real definition on her character's face, like where her nose is. And so her nose just looks like two holes in her face. Yeah, which was a very purposeful decision. They talked about the drawing of Jessica Rabbit and that they decided to not give her a nose head on, which is, it's almost like a, like when you overexpose an actress, you know, you do that kind of Von Sternberg lighting on somebody and, you know, they, they wash out a little bit like, like Madonna. Now that she's a little bit older, they wash her out with light. So all the wrinkles go away, but then you also lose her nose a lot of times. It's super weird, and I, I'm glad I'm glad that you noticed it, Mike, because it was one of those things where when I looked at it, I was like, that is not the same Jessica Rabbit that they are showing on screen. It's like the original design or like an alternate design that they had for her. Yeah, she looks more like Red from the Tex Avery Red Riding Hood ca- cartoons. Exactly. She just looks ethereal and wisp-like. I just kept feeling like, you know, they usually base cartoons by drawing a celebrity. I feel like, you know, Jessica Rabbit existed, and then years later, they created a human being named Angelina Jolie based on her, because that look and that vibe felt very similar to me. I really think that Hollywood from Ralph Bakshi's Cool World would not look the way that she does had Jessica Rabbit not existed. And I know that Kim Basinger did the voice of her in the film, but I she doesn't look like Kim Basinger at all. I just think that there's a little bit of uh, Jessica Rabbit DNA inside of her. Was that a setup for a really crude joke? Because I was going to make it. I didn't know if anyone else wanted to. Wah, wah. Th- this is something I, watching the film this time, I'm curious about. So Acme and her are, are like a... Th- are are not a thing, but she's having to put up a front to be a thing. Is it socially unacceptable in the world that Roger Rabbit exists in to be with a tune if you're a human? Is banging cartoons allowed in this world? Well, not allowed, but like, so this is kind of not an aside, but you, you mentioned at the beginning, it's like the cartoons are in their own ghetto. And if we're talking like a socioeconomic thing, you know, in the, you know, in the 30s and 40s and 50s in this country, it was socially, une- quote, socially unacceptable, not saying I agree with it, but there was a idea that, you know, African Americans and Caucasians shouldn't be together interracial, you know, it was frowned upon by racists. Is that the same thing here? Is that a thing? I felt like that was kind of a missed opportunity, sort of, maybe they would have touched on it if this film wasn't, com- like, didn't have that angle for kids. 
There's a whole thing, and we could talk about this a little bit later when we talk about who censored Roger Rabbit, the book that this was based on, and we'll probably talk about the Happy Time murders as well. But the idea of there's animal tunes and then there's humanoid tunes, and the humanoid tunes are, it's almost kind of, we're going to continue to use this whole idea of African Americans in America as this basis here. So if I were to say that this in that terms, it's almost like humanoid tunes occasionally can pass or they're seen as like lighter skin kind of thing. So they are given higher status than like an animal tune. What's weird to me in this movie is there's oh, you only really see one human tune. You see Jessica Rabbit. I mean, yeah, you see Baby Herman, who is a human baby cartoon character. You see Yosemite Sam, who is a Dwarf. Like a caricature of a pros yeah, a dwarf character caricature of a prospector. You see, I guess technically you do see too, because you see that like Jessica Rabbit fake out in Toontown. But it's just weird to me that the one humanoid cartoon character tune in this movie is like a very sexy woman. And they don't really touch on that otherwise. Well, and there is a very sexy Christopher Lloyd humanoid too. Oh my god, isn't that the truth? With those great 88 effects where the guy's being blown up by an air compressor. Makes me wish, makes me wish for the days of, uh, what is it? Dental, dental paste or whatever they use in Raiders of the Lost Ark with a hot fan. It's like, boy, you know, we could have done something like this or just something that looks really cheap and cheesy. Well, there's your R rating right there. Well, yeah, it's weird that he leaves that mask behind because I'm like, okay, there was a mask covering something else up. I wonder what he looked like without the mask on. But yeah, it's, the the one missed opportunity was to talk a little bit more about humanoid to- tunes. There is actually a humanoid tune in the book that is part of the cops investigating this murder case. Because it's kind of weird. Like, we don't get a lot of police presence in here. Then going back to the whole hard-boiled idea, that's always the thing as far as our main detective what is his relationship with the cops it's usually a rocky one and we get the one scene in here where the cops are investigating acme's murder but we don't really get them coming back into the story at all if memory serves it's more of like that scene with the cops ends up being about eddie being an alcoholic Hey, didn't you used to be Addie Valiant? So he used to be like clean and sober and somebody else. And then also it's a cue scene from James Bond where it's like, here's all the gadgets that you're going to use at the end of this movie. I mean, they touched on it in Happy Time Murders, which I did appreciate that. Like, you're you were a cop. You're a you were Phil Phillips at one point. And they did kind of miss out on that in this movie. It's like you were Eddie Valiant. But I feel like he was also looked down on. Because he only worked in Toontown? I mean, that's the thing about this movie, going back to kind of tunes as African-Americans, tunes as the, you know, the, 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 the minorities of the film. Like, the fact that he's looked down on by the city cops, the LAPD, as like, this guy's the toon guy, I think is interesting. But again, it feels very under underdeveloped, under, like, under, kind of underappreciated aspect of this film that they could have gone into, but they didn't because, again, it's not a, it's not really a film for adults. Like, that's just the long and the short of it. This film's not for adults. I think that we need to talk about the rabbit in the room because we've gotten this far into the podcast and we have essentially not mentioned Roger Rabbit. I think there's a reason for that. 
It's because he's annoying. <laughs> and I think that's what I appreciate about him most watching it older is that he is what it would be like if Mickey Mouse or you know Daffy Duck were in your house. You you would be just driven nuts by him if you had to be around him all the time. And so I appreciate that he's not really the star. He's he's awful. He is very awful. And that voice is just so annoying. Oh, I you know what? It might be annoying, but Charles Fleischer kills it. Oh, Charles Fleischer is a gift to mankind. He is in one of my favorite films of all times, Die Laughing. And yeah, he can do no wrong in my book. He absolutely carries the having to be the voice of Roger Rabbit so well in this movie. I, I love him and I love his performance. I mean, he's he's amazing in everything that I've ever seen him in. And, you know, he really has that knack and that talent for doing these voices that, like, you can't even tell that it's him. Like, if you heard his voice and then you hear Roger Rabbit, you're like, there's no way. Right. And that he does, like, multiple voices in here. Like, that he does the cab voice. It's like, really? Exactly. Exactly. He is like his voice. He is able to do things with his voice that a, a very talented voice actor could do, but he's never in the conversation for like most talent, like up there with talented voice actors, of like the last, you know, his contemporaries. Cause I mean, he's not really a contemporary of like Mel Blanc. He's more of a contemporary of like more of a Mark Hamill almost. Or like Dan Castellaneta or, um, oh God, the guy who does, um, Jim Cummings, the guy who does, like, all the Disney stuff now. He does, like, Winnie the Pooh and stuff like that. Because, like, when I hear Jim Cummings doing Winnie the Pooh or Goofy, I'm like, okay, that's Jim Cummings. But when you hear Charles Fleischer doing Roger Rabbit and then Benny the Cab in the same movie, you're like, that's the same guy. And then the Weasels as well. At least two of the Weasels, yeah. Though as soon as David Lander started to speak, I was just like, oh, it's Squicky. Okay. Anybody? No? Nobody? You guys didn't watch Laverne and Shirley? It's before my time, Mike. I know Squiggy. Di- I know Squiggy died in an episode of The Simpsons. I have an idea. It's crazy, but it just might work, like it did last week on another show. We bring in the biggest, most famous star from a '70s sitcom whose phone hasn't been disconnected. <gasps> Hello, Squiggy. And I want to correct myself before your audience corrects me. Jim Cummings doesn't do the voice of Goofy. Bill Farmer does. Sorry. Well, it's like the guy or people now that do the voices of the Muppets and it's just like they're close but not close enough so I can't really watch Kermit without Jim Henson doing his voice. I agree. With the way Roger Rabbit was performed you really can feel the belief in that his ethos of we should play, we should have fun, why shouldn't things be like that? And it's really, to me, it it hits home with the way children view play. Like, why wouldn't we do this? And I think that that's an important distinction between Toontown and Realtown, is Toontown has that that childlike sense of play, which, by the way, includes things like violence and meanness, because kids can be those things. And then the adult world, it doesn't have those things. It's not as colorful. It's very dreary. I mean, that scene where he drives from the tunnel of the real world into Toontown is one of my favorite scenes in this movie because I I, I can't even place where he is. Like, what is happening? He drives through the tunnel and all of a sudden it's like, 
it's like, holy shit, what is happening? And then it turns out he's just driving on a city street. And it's like, where did this even come from? What is happening? What? Who? What? What? And it's it's like it's like you said, it's like this weird dichotomy between the two in this film. And it works in that imagery. And then it works with Roger Rabbit and Eddie Valiant. It's a hellscape because you can't. Oh, I would rather die than be in Toontown. In, in Toontown, you might not die. Like, it might just, just keep happening. And when you see the two most beloved characters from Warner Brothers and Disney, they are tricking our hero into nearly dying in a fall off of a building. It's just this this poke that this is not necessarily a safe world. And I think I appreciate that because I think too often when you're doing things that are supposed to be childlike, it doesn't have that reminder of like childhood's really scary. And in childhood, you know, kids get weird sometimes and get angry and they're out of control. And so I think Toontown has that feel. In fact, when you were talking, Chris, earlier about, you know, is that a thing, sex between, you know, humans and tunes? I was just picturing a human guy walking into a building in Toontown with a pile of bills and a tune takes it and opens a door and there's a bed and an anthropomorphic glove on it, shivering, and he's like, Yes, this is what I've always wanted. The whorehouses of Toontown. Here's something, though, that you mentioned about the scene with Mickey and Bugs Bunny, which I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, is the only time they've ever appeared on screen together, is the tunes can't die from falling out of a building, but Eddie Valiant can. And that's the insane part, right? Is that they're just, like, flying through the air, like, okay, you guys are insane. I also like that it's Bugs Bunny that hands them the anvil, because Disney was just like, "Mm mm-mm. Can't have our beloved Mickey do anything tricksy like that. Mickey is a wholesome character. Yeah. Bugs Bunny is, ain't I a stinker? I mean, yeah, okay. That's why I always preferred Warner Brothers cartoons to Disney cartoons, because of that sense of anarchy that we're talking about when it comes to this stuff, is that it seemed like... And I know that there are the older things, the silly symphonies, those kind of things. I grew up when Disney was already sanitized, and... You know, trying to really own the child market, watching Warner Brothers cartoons as a kid, you got to see things like, you know, going after the Dodo, that cartoon with, I think it's Porky Pig going after the Dodo, one of the most surreal things ever done. And, you know, even like the, the cartoon with the Bugs Bunny where he's in the plane and there's the gremlin. I mean, so many bizarro gags in that thing that I just absolutely love how off the hook Warner Brothers cartoons were. It makes me wonder, talking about whether or not they can die, perhaps the only time that these creatures have experienced mortality is the dip. Well, that's what they say. That's what the cop says. He says, for the longest time, we didn't know if you could kill a tune, and he figured out a way to do it. And it makes perfect sense. You're taking a character who is ink and dipping them in ink remover. You know, paint remover. I mean, turpentine and benzene and... Acetone, yeah. Because otherwise, you could chop them in two and then just regrow and go off on their merry way. Can we talk about possibly the meanest scene in this movie where an adorable little shoe, which they've animated and and made the noises just perfectly comes cozying up to our villain and, and judge doom takes it and exterminates it screaming in the dip. It was even worse in the script because it was more 
of like a creature than a shoe. You know, an anthropomorphic shoe is horrific enough, but this was more like a chipmunk or something in the script. It was just like, oh my god. After you. Oh no, you first. Thank you. The, the thing I love about this movie, like taking away the fact that, Mike, I like you said, you're not a huge fan of this movie. I think the three of us can all agree Christopher Lloyd is amazing in this movie as the villain. He is so committed to the role. I and I I kind of regret reading more into the movie because the person that originally auditioned for the role and was deemed too scary, I I wish that that movie existed in some alternate universe. Tim Curry is playing Judge Doom. You know that movie would be even more batshit than this. Because kids had problems with Judge Doom in this movie with Christopher Lloyd playing him. Can you imagine Tim Curry playing Judge Doom? That would be just ballistic. Do you notice that when his glasses are off, he doesn't blink? Yeah. I honest to God thought that his teeth were cartoon teeth. He is perfect. I will grant that movie that. He is great. And then noticing little things like the way he steps out of the way of the dip when it's on the floor and stuff. It's like, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when the reveal comes and he shows his his eyes and his hair and he, he starts doing that voice... It's a transformation. It's very unsettling. The the thing that happens after the reveal where he flies through the air on those springs is it's still creepy to me now. It is straight up horrifying when he's like tilting forward, flying through the air. And you're just like, what in the holy hell are we gotten ourselves into with this movie? Because this I mean, this is the climax of the film and his comeuppance is coming real quick. But, man, he really gets in those last couple shots right at the end of the movie, really selling how horrifying of a character he is. We haven't talked about Dolores at all, which is interesting, because there's always the dichotomy of the two women in these films. There's the good girl and there's the femme fatale. Though, Jessica... She's not bad, though, Mike. She's just drawn that way. Well, and yeah, and she actually, at the end of the day, is not the femme fatale, though we think that she is. And Joanna Cassidy, I never think that that woman gets enough credit because she has been in a lot of great things. You know, we've talked about Blade Runner on the show before, and she's done a lot of great work. She continues to work now. Like, I will still see her on TV these days. But I thought she did a really good job of Dolores, who's kind of like, you know, the hard scrabble lady in the way that she loaned any money, but... And I'm not talking about the singer. I was like, boy, you really walked right into that one. You sure gave us two tickets to paradise with that joke. I'd like to take you home tonight, if you know what I mean. She does a good job in that role, and I really appreciate her. And I think the whole dropping of the pants thing later on with Jessica, it's a little much, but, you know, it kind of still works. I have this rule in my head that I look at female characters and I kind of imagine, like, would it be fun to be this character? Would it be fun to play this character? Like, would would there be stuff there? You know, or is this really just, like, someone who's there only to be attractive? And and watching Jessica Rabbit older, she's a cool character. She's caught up in some things. Then later on, she has some more authority, and she stands up for herself, for her man. She uh, seems to be comp- competent at handling things on her own. And I realize that Jessica Rabbit... If you were to do, it's like solo a uh, Star Wars story, but, but try to do it well, and you did a Jessica Rabbit solo movie, 
don't do that. That's a horrible idea, but it could be good. Don't give them any ideas now. Robert Zemeckis will take any opportunity to make a bad movie. Welcome to Marwin. <clears throat> there are some genuinely funny lines in this movie. The whole idea of him not even having a nickel for the streetcar and then riding in the back with those kids. Very Marty McFly of them. And when he leaves and he says, thanks for the cigarettes, I was like, okay, that's kind of funny. I thought Bob Hoskins was really funny in this. And I thought he played it just right. Like he was, I kind of felt like he was a Captain Kangaroo character. Like he's the host of this thing. And he's the only guy that can kind of hold these worlds together. And at the end becomes kind of a human cartoon when he does all this dancing and singing. And yeah, he gets to say a lot of things that are really funny. But again, is that surprising considering how Bob Hoskins is a fantastic actor? No, I just like talking about Bob Hoskins. I know, me too, right? Mm. I like talking about his hairy back. Mike, I've not met you, but I've seen pictures of kind of what your face looks like. And I think that your back probably has the same amount of like foliage as mine does. Back, shoulders, ass. It is everywhere. Boy, this has really taken a turn. I have hair every place I don't want hair. And where I do want hair, none grows there. I don't have hair on my face, and I don't have hair most places, but I would love to have a beard. More so than my wife, obviously. Just took that one right <laughs> away from me. We were just snatching jokes. You know what, Mike? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> because I knew that shit was coming. That's why I said it. Yeah. Speaking of people that could have been in this movie that weren't hairy, the fact that Harrison Ford was too expensive for this movie cracks me up. That would have sucked. Yeah. I don't know, like, there are so many people that were considered for the role. Again, like, there's an alternate universe out there where Chevy Chase played Eddie Valiant. Or if Bill Murray hadn't had this weird way of getting in touch with his lawyer to get him parts, he would have taken this role. It would have, like, it's, it's, a, there's a, there's weird stuff with this movie where it's like, man, what could have been? Is that why Bill Murray took Space Jam so he could work with cartoons? I don't know, because, like, it's, it, when I was reading, it said that he, he, was considered for the role, but he like missed out on the offer. So must be. It's not a coincidence that it's another live action movie with cartoon characters. However, sorry to break it to all you millennials out there, myself included. Space Jam is not a good movie. Don't worry. LeBron will make it good. Could care less. And no, he won't. And just as every good detective story is about one thing, but then there's actually the overarching story. I do like the overarching story as far as the idea of this is all being done to Los Angeles, that Toontown is being bought up and knocked down and eradicated of tunes. Basically, a cartoon holocaust is about to happen in order to make sure that the freeway goes through. And, of course, we have jokes which don't necessarily play for people in the Midwest like me, where they're talking about, you know, oh, Los Angeles has the best public transportation system and nobody's going to drive on the freeway. Though this whole idea of taking the streetcars out and making way for freeways or bringing in public transportation that is buses or just eliminating public transportation – that same thing happened here in Detroit, where it was just like, oh, people get killed by streetcars. Don't worry, we'll bring in fucking buses, and we'll sell them to you at wholesale. I think it's funny, Mike, that you think you're in the Midwest. Uh, Axel and I live in the place where it is boring, <laughs> and there is nothing. I know Detro Detroit is a bastion of excitement compared to Lincoln, Nebraska. 
We were called the Paris of the Midwest, so I consider us uh, well. If truth be told, we are in the Middle East, and you guys are more in the Midwest. My daughter gets excited when a car drives by our house. She says, "Car," because that's where we're at now. Let me put it this way: you know, you live in the Midwest when a Chick Fil A opens here, and I kid you not, it was the best new restaurant voted by the the newspaper in town. Uh, I do find it funny you were talking about genocide because. Zemeckis has said, <laughs> documentedly, that he compares the dip to Hitler's final solution, which, my God, keep your mouth, keep your mouth shut, Zemeckis, please. So again, we are going to some really dark territory here. Honestly, it's not that we're even reaching here, right? Like, that's not a reach. Like, he talks about taking this machine to Toontown and scrubbing it off the face of the earth. And there's there's a lot of wrong in this movie that is not going to fly in the politically politically correct time. There's the uh, screaming Indian bullet. Oh right! Oh there, my god! There's the straitjacket wearing weasel named Psycho. There's just a lot of things. <laughs> and I'm not saying that they should be removed, or I'm not calling on a crusade for them. It's just I think this movie. And I think Robert Zemeckis, and I mean this is a positive thing, I think there's something wrong with him. And I think when he demonstrates that there's something wrong with him, he makes really cool stuff. I think the reason why stuff like in-betweener stuff like Who Framed Roger Rabbit wouldn't fly now, and this isn't a fault thing, but I think it it's not going to happen because we have South Park and The Simpsons and Rick and Morty and The Happy Time Murders where you can get all that stuff that you want to see. So... Maybe it's because adults and kids aren't watching stuff together anymore. Yeah, I mean, this is meant to kind of bridge the gap, right? This is a film for children and adults. And that's what I do appreciate about this film, is that it is a film that tries to span the gap of giving adults something while giving kids something. I mean, a a film like, you know, and this is not super adult, but like a film like Shrek, it's it's a children's film, but there's also a lot of jokes that are not for kids. I mean, there is a penis joke in that film about Lord Farquaad. It's like he's compensating for something like as a kid, I didn't know what that meant. But like now it's like, oh, he's got a small dick. Well, I like when the weasel reaches down Jessica's dress and ends up with a bear trap on his uh, hand or whatever. And Eddie says, nice booby trap. I'm like, OK, that's kind of funny. I would say that that's totally sold by bob hoskins i mean there are a million ways of reading that line and i think maybe 10 of them work and he found the right one i know that i was ripping on his accent earlier but he carries this movie off and he carries this movie i mean the mime stuff that he has to do with no character to act against or characters to act against he's having conversations with an entire cartoon crew at uh, a few points here but when he's talking to jessica and, and roger and yeah, that's that's fantastic. He does a great job of that. And the way that he moves his body, the way that he interacts with these things, the way that... And I'm glad, for the most part, they are pretty good with eye lines in this movie. There aren't too many times where people look like they're looking out into space or not matching where the actual characters are. So they do a pretty good job with that. And I know that the big selling point when it came to this movie was the interactivity of the cartoons in a real environment, which now 
seems like it would be super easy to do, but in 1988, when this came out, probably took a lot of mechanical jiggering of stuff in order to say, this thing is going to move from here to there to the other place. Like, seeing the octopus at the bar without the octopus there and seeing all of the things that are moving around that, it's like, okay, yeah, they did a good job of this stuff. Can we talk about the bumping of the lamp? Bumping the lamp is a term for going the extra mile, taking the extra step. And the scene in the film when Eddie is trying to saw the handcuffs off him and Roger and there's a lamp above them. And it's a scene you may you, you kind of just might even not think about it when you see it. But the lamp above them, it's hanging down, it gets bumped and it's going in a circular motion around the room, casting the light around them. And initially, Zemeckis didn't want um, Zemeckis just wanted the lamp to keep hitting Eddie's head and he thought that it would be funny. Zemeckis, clearly, his sense of humor is great. Um, instead, the animators were like, no, let, let us, let us, let us go for this. So what they ended up doing was they animated the shadow so that it would, so you could tell that because Roger was interacting with something in the world, it further sell, sold kind of the space that they're living in and the fact that they're interacting with each other. And it's the extra mile that these Disney animators went and while the audience might not notice it, it's something that like mattered to them and mattered to like Michael Eisner that, you know, it's just bumping the lamp is now like a, a term for like going the distance, going farther than you need to. And I and that scene, every time I see it, it is beyond impressive. It's also Eddie Money's most sexual song, isn't it? Oh, my God. It's one of those things, too, where if you don't notice it, you don't notice it. But if the shadows weren't right. If that lamp was going around, we didn't see those shadows move. I'm sure I would notice it right away. Exactly. And that's, and that's the point that the animators were, were going for is even if you didn't notice it, you're subconsciously noticing it. But when you like focus on it, if you see like the video or you see like a gif of it, it is so impressive and so seamless that there are some things in this film regarding the, Bob Hoskins or other characters interacting with the cartoons and like the the weasel's guns hanging in the air looks really shitty. And, and some of the other kind of gags aren't great. And some of them feel like those, you know, gags in the 3D movies that were coming out in the late 2000s. That's like the character holds the bat up at the camera and oh, God, the 3D. It feels kind of like that in a way, like we're just showing off technology for technology's sake. But when you have something like this bumping the lamp scene, you're just like, holy cow, the amount of talent and work that is put into this is really impressive and it really helps solidify the world and space that these characters live in. Though there are times, and I kind of wish that I could control this like through a DVD or something, there are times where the shadows are a little much and it just doesn't match up that well. And I'm just like, that's really too dark of a shadow. But then again, it could be my TV. It could be fucked up. Who knows? But it's not like one of those movies where they have a gimmick in it and they just do the gimmick and everything else is kind of bland and stayed. Like they went, you know, hell or high water, they did a fully immersed movie. Yeah, they bumped, they bumped the lamp through the entire film. They went for it and really, they really went for it. And I got to give them credit for that. Even if the film is not, you know, Mike, like, you know, you're not the biggest fan of it. Like you still have to give credit where credit's due for, for going and going that extra mile. Yeah, no, when it comes to gimmicks, I mean, we'll be talking about Brainstorm in a few months, then we'll be talking about gimmicks pretty much the whole time. 
The one thing I was very surprised about watching this movie was to see Br'er Bear show up in that last big group of cartoons that come out of Toontown. I thought for sure he would have been in movie jail this whole time. Uh, I saw that in the theater. Yeah, I did too. I have a VHS of the sing-along version of that that has been effectively disavowed by Disney. I have the Hong Kong DVD. Yeah, it's one of those movies that, uh, you know, it's not nearly as exciting as people make it out to be. We did do an episode on that. And we also talked about Ralph Bakshi's Coonskin, which is quite a sight to behold. But at the same time, the fact that they acknowledge it in this film is a little odd. And it's weird that they had to negotiate who they could get in the movie and stuff, that some characters were too pricey. I know, like, they didn't end up getting, like, the Popeye characters. You you know, you're talking about being triggered by olive oil, but joke's on you, she's not in here. But I'm not triggered by olive oil. Okay, if anyone listening to this honestly thought that anything in this film triggers me, nothing did at all. Was Woody Woodpecker in this movie? I think he kind of shows up at the end and sort of goes in front of the camera, I think. Because there's a lot of them right towards the end, and it it was a little tough to kind of sort through all the faces. You know what I really appreciated? The fact that this Disney film, it's Buena Vista, yes, I know, this Disney film ended with the one of the most iconic Warner Brothers cartoon characters. The fact that you put Porky Pig at the end of a Disney film is actually kind of insane. It's an olive branch. For all the years, all the lives lost in the cartoon wars. The toon wars. So much dip was spent. But apparently Woody Woodpecker is in this film somewhere. We're going to take a break and play an interview with the author of Who Censored Roger Rabbit, Gary K. Wolf, and we'll be back right after these brief messages. Well, Eric, would you say that we're just two dudes who love talking about movies over at the Culture Cast? I mean, yeah, I don't know if dudes is the correct nomenclature, though. <laughs> dudes, bros. Okay, what about movie nerds? No, okay, uh, dudes is fine. Not nerds. Anything but movie nerds. Well, over here at the Culture Cast, we talk about new movies, overlooked gems, classics, and some films that cause us to question our sanity twice a week. Yeah, Hot to Trot comes to mind for sure. Yeah, Hot to Trot was a real mess. So make sure to check out the Culture Cast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. After Movie Diner promo, take one. John Wayne here from the Brannigan Podcast. Has anyone seen the full Vernon? No, try again. Sweaty Vernon here from the... No, come on. Hey, how's it going? I'm Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast. Hoping you'll tune in to After Movie Diner. It's my favorite podcast. better, but also at the same time completely useless. Um, Try and mention the movie reviews, the interviews with independent film directors, things like that. Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast here. Hoping you'll turn in for a... It's tune-in. Christ. <laughs> Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast. Hoping you'll turn in... <laughs> thing turning. How hard is it? 
Just the point of damn show. Do it right, or I'm going to come down there and nail your face to the fridge. Listen up, folks. Matt Ringler here from Schlock Treatment. I want to tell you about a great podcast, The After Movie Diner. There's plenty of pie, and everything's delicious, especially the host, the sweaty Vernon. No, 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 no. I mean, he didn't even mention that the podcast is available every Monday at amdpodcast.blogspot.com and iTunes. Idiot. I do definitely want to ask about you, and I'm very curious how you decided to get into writing. Way back when, uh, I was an Air Force captain, and I met my wife. She is the love of my life. Uh, I walked into the officer's club at Hanscom Field in uh, in Massachusetts, and I saw her on the other side of the room. Uh, she was there with a bunch of her airline stewardess friends. She was wearing the shortest dress I had ever seen on a real-life human being, and I, I <laughs> fell immediately in love at Overhills, and uh, we started going out after that, and I started writing her poetry. It was not the best poetry. She's kept it, and I've looked at it since. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm no poet. But she liked the poems, and she said, you know, they're, they're really good, and you seem to be a really good writer. You should, uh, you should write short stories. And so I started writing short stories. I had an inclination toward writing because years and years ago, and I mean, we're going back now to when I was in the second or third grade. My second grade teacher gave me, gave whole class a picture to color. And the picture was a farmhouse, a barn, a field, a fence, and a cow standing all alone out in the middle of that field. And the object of the coloring lesson was to stay inside the lines. Just stay inside the lines, and that was all it required. And in those days, I was probably as good at staying inside the lines as anybody in the world. Piece of cake here. I took that picture home, and I looked at it, and I colored the farmhouse yellow, which was where farmhouses were. This, this was in a little town called Earlville, Illinois, a uh, farm town, population 1,400. And the, the farmhouses were mostly yellow, so I colored the farmhouse yellow, colored the barn red, because, of course, that's what colored barns were, filled with green. And I'm looking at that cow. And, you know, a cow all alone out there in the middle of the field looks kind of sad and lonely. My mother had always told me that when people were – Sad and lonely, they got blue. And I said, well, you know, good for people, must be good for cows. So I colored the cow blue, handed that paper in. So the very next day, the, the teacher hands out all except for mine, which she kept. And uh, she called me up in front of the front of the class and held that paper up over my head. She said, to face the class. And she held that paper up over my head. And she said, class, now look at this stupid, stupid picture. Everybody knows that cows are brown, cows are, cows are black, cows are white. Sometimes cows are brown, black, and white altogether. Never, never, never are cows blue. So she called my mother and said, you know, I think, I think you've got a problem with Gary. I think there's something wrong with him. My mother had to go to school and meet with a teacher and get this, you know, firsthand that there was something wrong with me. That night, my mother and father sat me down in the living room. And my mother said to me, Gary, why did you color the cow blue? And I told my mother, I said, well, 
you know, Mott, it, it's you. It, you know, you, you told me uh, people sound lonely. I cowboys sound lonely. I call her the cow blue. And she said, oh, okay, well, you go outside and play for a while. Your father and I have to talk about this. Now, you got to understand my parents. Now, my parents were children of the Depression. My mother uh, had an eighth grade education before she had to quit and go to work. My father made it through the third grade before he had to quit and go to work. So, she at the time worked in the uh, in the school cafeteria. My dad ran the town pool hall. I mean, these were not what you call well-educated upscale liberals, right? <laughs> this was not going to have a happy ending. So they told me to go outside and play. I and then you know, ten fifteen minutes later, my mother said, "Come back in." She and my father sat me down again and they said, you know, you, you, said, you're, you know, your dad and I talked about this and we decided that the next time you want to color a cow blue, you go ahead and color a cow blue. And that was the first time that anybody had ever validated my creativity. I mean, and in second grade, I probably didn't have a whole lot, but that was really the first time and I've still got that picture. And so the next assignment that I got from that very same teacher was to write a little essay on what you did on your summer vacation. So I wrote about how I went out in the backyard, built a spaceship in front of the moon. And the teacher just looked at it and gave it back to me, and that was it. Uh, and so that was probably my first fictional writing experience. But I didn't really get into writing as a as a profession until after my wife encouraged me because of the uh, the poems I wrote to her. So what was that like as far as that move into professional writing? I mean, that's never an easy transition. Well, uh, for me, it, it wasn't that hard. I had a job. At the time, I was still in the Air Force, and I was, uh, I was working uh, at, a, at an air base here in Massachusetts. And I would get up early. I'd get up at 4 in the morning, and I would write from like 4 to 7.30, and then I'd go to work. And I started writing short stories. And I wrote... Uh, I don't know, 20 or 30 short stories, which I've since collected into a uh, a book, which uh, you can buy on my website. I did you know, 20 or 30 short stories, and I sent the first one off to a science fiction publication, and I, I didn't hear anything. A year went by, and I, I, you know, I, so I kept writing short stories, and I figured, well, it must have been so bad that it just went right in the old trash bucket. After a year, I got a telegram. And it said, you know, we we got your story, which was actually called Love Story. And uh, it was unfortunate because it came out, that short story came out at the same time as the uh, Ali McGraw uh, movie. And there was no similarity whatsoever. But they said, we, we got your story and we want to publish it. And if you want us to publish it and agree, uh, said, you send us a telegram back and we'll send you a check for $50. The 50 bucks, wow, you know, it was a 50-page short story. I got a buck a page. So I said, of course, you know, I want to do this. And by then we had moved to San Francisco. So I said, well, you know, I've, I've now sold something, and I'm now a, a published author. I need an author's wardrobe. So I said, I'm going to use my 50 bucks to go out and buy an author's wardrobe. So I went out and I bought myself a, a tweed jacket, tweed sport coat with the leather patches on the sleeves. And uh, a black turtleneck. If I was still a smoker, I would have bought myself a new pipe, but uh, I quit that years ago. So uh, then I went uh, in San Francisco. I went to uh, Upper Grant Street and bought a custom-made pair of leather pants. 
uh, which I can still wear, I'm proud to say, uh, except that this was the early 70s and my custom-made leather pants were bell-bottoms, <laughs> wide bell-bottoms, but the whole author's wardrobe wound up costing me $325. So uh, I came out with a with a net loss of, uh, I don't know, you do the math, uh, 275 of the on the first sale. But after that, every short story that I wrote was published. It was really not a, an agonizing process for me. I, I got kind of mentored by a very famous science fiction writer called Damon Knight. And uh, he did a series of anthologies one a year. And he would always write me and say, hey, uh, you know, I've got an anthology coming up. Uh, how about giving me a story? So I, I, I would write all these stories. And uh, it was really not much of a, of course, I wasn't trying to make a living at it either. I mean, it was at that point more more of a hobby. And uh, I started to realize that for, you know, instead of writing 12 short stories, I could write one novel. And uh, so I, I wrote a novel. My agent sent it to Doubleday. Doubleday came back and said, yeah, we'll publish this. And not only that, we'll give you a contract for a second one. Just you write us a second one. So I wrote the second one and. Uh, and the first one was Killer Bowl, which uh, is still, in, in science fiction circles, when I go to a science fiction convention as opposed to a Disney convention, I am known as the guy who wrote Killer Bowl. It is still my most popular science fiction novel. I still get 30 to 40 fan letters a month on it, and it was from 1976. Actually, it's just now being made into a graphic novel comic book series, and it's being turned into a table game by a company, a British company, that makes little less soldiers who are turning it into a table game. That was coming out right around the same time that Rollerball was coming out, the movie. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll give you the Rollerball Killer Bowl story. And remember what I told you before, my first short story came out and it was called Love Story. And it came out at the same time as the Ryan O'Neill uh, Adam McGraw movie, Love Story. And I got criticized because people said, oh, you ripped off the title. Well, I didn't. It took, like I, like I said, it was a one-year process for the, uh, for the story between the time I sent it in and I was working on it actually for a year before that. So it was actually two years. And uh, the movie came out in that interim. So no crossover. I wrote this book, Killer Bowl. I named it XXI 21, which is the name of the Super Bowl that, that has been played. And I sent it to Doubleday. That was my first novel that I ever sent to Doubleday. And the editor there said, oh, you know, we're going to publish it. They had, a, I think, an 18-month or two-year backlog. So it was going to be 18 months or two years before it actually came out. And we did all the editing on it. In the interim, between the time that I wrote Killer Bowl and the time it actually came out, the short story Rollerball came out in Esquire magazine. Now, this was after I had already written Killer Bowl. The short story Rollerball came out, was picked up, was made into a movie, and was released <laughs> while I was waiting for my book to come out. And my editor said, you know, she said, there's this movie Rollerball coming out, I think we should change the name of your book to Kibble to kind of capitalize on that. And I said, sure. I, I didn't I didn't know at the time. I had no no marketing study about publishing, printing and stuff like that. Sure do it. So they did it and of course my novel then wound up coming out after the movie and I was criticized for ripping off the premise of rollerball. 
But the, the real dagger to my heart was that when it was still titled XXI21, when it was titled that, my agent had gotten me a contract to, to serialize it in Playboy. And, of course, when it, the movie came out, Rollerball, and the book came out, and we retitled it, or my the double day retitled The Killer Bowl, and I was criticized for ripping off the movie, that contract fell through. I thought there went my visits to the Playboy Mansion and, and you know, hanging with Hef and all that kind of stuff. Uh, turned out I was able to do that years later, but I thought, ah, there it goes. But kind of interesting because uh, now the, the Killer Bowl book, as I say, is coming out as a comic book, a graphic novel, and it's coming out as a, uh, a table game. And there's, uh, there's some talk about doing it as a movie. I, I just read it. I, I reread it occasionally I, when I publish new editions of it. I just published a new edition of it uh, about a year and a half ago, and I reread it. But one thing that has always gone over my head is that in the original, it was named XXI, the game that they're playing is a Super Bowl. And a Super Bowl was kind of a new thing when I wrote this, when I wrote this novel. <laughs> of course, it's not a new thing anymore. The guy who did the table game was doing the table game. Said, "Are we going to get in trouble with the NFL if we call this Super Bowl?" And I thought, "I don't know." So I asked my attorney, and he said, "Yeah, they'll sue you." So it actually, the name of the game they're playing is now called Killer Bowl instead of Super Bowl. So it's Killer Bowl Twenty One instead of Super Bowl Twenty One, which I actually like a whole lot better. I probably would have done back in nineteen seventy six if uh, if I'd thought about it. Yeah. Tell me about how Roger Rabbit gets optioned. I wrote the second novel, and they published that one, gave me a contract for a third novel. I wrote that one, and they published that one. I said, you know, this is going to be my life. This is going to go on forever. So they gave me a contract for a fourth novel. And for the, for the fourth novel, I wanted to do something that nobody had ever done before. I wanted to really push the envelope. I wanted to use the things that I had most loved when I was younger, and a young adult that, that I that I, I really loved, and, and those things were comic books, and cartoons, and comic strips, and uh, hard-boiled noir mysteries. And I mean, you could see the comic books and the comic strips because uh, my mother, wise woman that she was, told me that if I wanted to get out of that little farm town and not wind up running my father's pool hall when I grew up, that the one thing I could do to make that happen was to read. Just read, and, and that will get you out of there. But she never put any restriction on what I read. So I read, I read comic books all the time. Uh, so I got a love of comic books. And my father, uh, not an educated man, but uh, his reading preferences were uh, graphic crime magazines, which were very popular back in the uh, 40s, 50s. Uh, and they, they showed... <laughs> they, they talked about real, actual crimes. They showed real, actual photos of real, actual crimes with real dead bodies and dismembered people. And I loved it. That <laughs> was great. Uh, luckily, I, I transitioned into better literature, like uh, you know Philip Marlowe and Sam Spade and uh, you know Mickey Spillane, hard-boiled private eyes. But those were my loves. And so I wanted to do something that would combine those two things. I, I mean, not easily done, you know, not as easy as it sounds. So I was, I was looking around for, trying to get an inspiration 
for how I could do that, how I could use cartoons and hard-boiled private eye together. And I was watching Saturday morning cartoons one Saturday morning just, you know, for research, I told my wife, purely for research. I'm sitting here on the sofa watching Saturday morning cartoons, and I I was taken by uh, not the cartoons themselves, which were pretty simplistic back in those days, but by the commercials. And I saw real kids talking to cartoon characters, Captain Crunch, Snap, Crackle, and Pop, Tony the Tiger, uh, the Trix Rabbit, real kids talking to cartoon characters, and nobody thought that was odd. I said, wow, you know, what a great idea for a book that would be if you had a world where cartoon characters were real. What kind of a world would that be? So I spent a year just researching the conventions of comic books, cartoon strips, to see what happened in comic books and cartoons that didn't happen in real life with real people and how I could make a novel out of that. And then I brought in my hard book, Private Eye, uh, Eddie Valiant, uh, named him after my father, came up with a, a mystery that would only work in Toontown, in the place that I created. Spent a year researching and writing the book. And, of course, that was my fourth novel for Doubleday. So I sent it to Doubleday and said, here's my fourth novel. And they rejected it. <laughs> they rejected it. <laughs> the first reject I'd ever had in my life, Roger Rabbit. So I called my editor. And I said, yeah, sure, why, why did you reject this? She, she said, oh, they, you know, well, you can keep the money. You know, you don't have to give us back the money, but we can't publish the book. And I said, I you know, don't care about money. Why can't you publish this? And she said, well, I, I think it's the most creative thing you've ever done. She says, maybe it's the most creative novel I've ever read. She said, it's just, it's just brilliant. It's so unusual that I had to send it over to the marketing department, and they were the ones who rejected it. So I, I called the head of the marketing department, adult, Charlie. And why did you, why did you reject my book? And he said, "Oh, he said, there's no category for it on the bookstore shelves. I, I can't sell. I can't sell this." He said, "It's not a, it's not a regular adult novel. It's not a fantasy. It's not science fiction. It's not a children's book. I, I can't sell this." And I said, "All right, Charlie. Let me ask you, what would you do if somebody gave you Gulliver's Travels?" or Alice in Wonderland, or The Wizard of Oz. What would you do with those? And he thought for a minute and said, nah, I couldn't sell those either. <laughs> so I went back to my agent, and I said, who had been having a pretty easy time of it up to this point, you know, spending a completed novel and collecting this 15%. And I said, you know, Bill, what, what am I going to do? I said, you know, if I can't, if I can't sell this book, I don't want to be a writer anymore because this is what I want to write. I mean, this is what I love. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. He said, well, we'll find a home for it. So he started sending it out to other publishers, and um, he would send it out to many other publishers, sometimes to different editors of the same publisher, and it kept getting rejects, kept getting rejects, uh, um, always for the same reason. The editors loved it. Marketing department said, oh, we can't sell this. We, you know, we can't publish this because we can't sell it. Along the way, uh, that Roger Rabbit novel got 110 rejects. 110 rejects. I used to go to the, they used to come in by mail in those days. We didn't have email. And I used to go to the, used to go to my mailbox every day and open them up and start telling my wife, you know, it's time for the daily disappointments because there'll be <laughs> sometimes two and three reject letters on that book in my mailbox every day. Finally, the book landed on the desk 
of a woman named Rebecca Martin, who was a senior editor at the St. Martin's Press, and she had just published a big best-selling novel for him. So the editor, the, the, the editor-in-chief at St. Martin's Press, the president of the company, gave Rebecca a vanity project. And he said, Rebecca, next book you publish, you can publish whatever you want. Any book you want to publish, we'll publish. As luck would have it, Roger Rabbit came across her desk. And she read it, and like all editors before her, she loved it. And so she went to the president of St. Martin's and said, here's the book I want to publish. And he said, okay, let me take a look. So he took a look, read it that night, called her the next day and said, Rebecca, I told you you could publish anything you wanted. You can't publish this because I can't sell it. So Rebecca uh, stepped up to the plate and said, you know, either publish it or I quit. And, uh, yeah, so they did publish it, albeit in very small quantities, less than 5,000 copies, which is uh, almost nothing. Uh, sold for four ninety five, I believe. If I had had any foresight, I would have bought all 5,000 of those copies myself because now if you can find one on eBay, they go for around 400 bucks. The book was going to be published by St. Martin's, and there was a, I think, a one-year lag in the time I sold it. I sold it in 1980. It came out in 1981. During that time, 1980 uh, plus a couple of months, the book still hadn't come out. And one day I got a call, and the voice I said, is Gary, Gary K. Wolf. I said, yes, it is. He said, well, this is Roy Disney. And I just read your novel, uh, Who Censored Roger Rabbit? And I'd like to know if you'd be interested in having Disney make a movie of it. Yeah, right, right, Disney. Nothing hasn't even come out as a book yet. Well, yeah, I think without one of my friends having me off here. Uh, but he said, no, 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 that's really Roy Disney. And it turns out that somebody at St. Martin's, uh, I, I never found out who, and I tried because I, I wanted to kiss her or him full of lips for doing this, but somebody sent a copy of the manuscript to Disney and said, we, I think you'd be interested in this. It turns out that most movie companies in those days, maybe still, I don't know, uh, had spies, for want of a better term, in publishing houses that will send them advanced copies of novels that they think the, the movie company would be interested in. And Disney had one of those at St. Martin's, and that, that person sent to Disney who censored Roger Rabbit. It made its way up to Roy Disney, and Roy Disney said, yeah, geez, we'd, we'd love to do this. And the, the reason that they wanted Roger Rabbit, the reason Roger Rabbit was important to them, a couple of reasons. They, at the, at the time, in 1980, were in danger of becoming a second-rate movie studio. They were no longer making first-run pictures. They were making pictures that were intended to be like the second half of a double feature, of which there were no more. There were no more double features. They were making, um, you know, The Nutty Professor and uh, The Black Cauldron and The Black Hole. And, and, you know, The Black Cauldron disappeared down the black hole. I mean, they, they were making second-rate movies. Uh, they had been offered E.T., and they passed. They had been offered Star Wars, and they passed. They made some horrendous mistakes, and they wanted something that they could use to reestablish themselves as a major motion picture studio. Uh, they saw Roger Rabbit as being that movie. They also wanted the characters because uh, they had Mickey and they had Donald, but 
Mickey was like the corporate spokesperson, so you couldn't really have any fun with him. You know, Donald, you could have fun with, but nobody could understand what he said. So uh, he was out. And if you've ever been to Disneyland or a Disney store, you realize that Disney makes a tremendous amount of money selling merchandise with characters on it. So they wanted a new stable of characters that they could merchandise and, you know, make some additional money at. And they saw Roger Rabbit as being that character and, and uh, Baby Herman uh, and to some lesser extent Jessica. So they had a lot of reasons to want to do this movie. Uh, they made me an offer. It was actually more money than I'd ever made on all I writing put together. I said, sure, you know. Go ahead, have at it. I really did not believe this book could be made into a movie. I, if you've read the book, and everybody should because it's a classic, I use a lot of cartoon and comic strip conventions in the book. The book is intended for readers who use their imagination. You, you, you get into this world and you imagine what it is like to be there. For instance, uh, in the in the book, Who Censored Roger Rabbit, the characters don't speak, per se. They don't have voices. They can talk, but they choose not to. They put up word balloons. So instead of talking to a tune, you read the tune. And if the tune turns around, his word balloon also turns around, so you have to read him in reverse. If a tune plays the piano musical notes come out of the piano and people will collect those musical notes and cut them into eight by 10 sheets. So that's where sheet music comes from. And if you get shot by a, uh, by a tune gun, it puts up a bang balloon and that kind of is, get, turns brittle and lays on the floor and you can take the bang balloon and analyze it and find out the caliber of the tune gun. If you get the tune gun, you can compare that bang balloon to the bang balloon you've gotten. It's a match. So there's a lot of conventions in the book that, that require readers to use their imagination. You can't do that in a movie. It, it, you know, it, it, when they were making, when they were first trying to make the movie, they tried using the word balloons, and it just didn't work. It turned the movie into a silent movie. The character would put up a word balloon, you'd have to read the word balloon, and the action would go on, and it was a silent movie. So that was one of the first things to go, even though they really wanted to use that because they thought it was really clever and creative. You know, the conventions of of the book, the conventions of the movie. So I really didn't think they could make this into a movie. I, I, I thought that there were too many, too many things that had to be overcome creatively to ever get the story on screen in a, in a way, in any way, shape or form resembling what I intended when I wrote the world, or created the world. Uh, and for a while, Disney proved me right. They, uh, they really didn't have the manpower to, to do this movie back in 1980. They tried to throw a lot of producers at it. The, the technology wasn't there to integrate live action and animation. So they came to me and they said, you know, we're, we're thinking just to get the movie done. What would you say if instead of cartoons and human beings, we did human beings and human beings dressed in costumes like they are in Disneyland? And I thought, oh, geez, you know, I'm going to have, I'm going to wind up with Fred McMurray as, as Eddie Villain and uh, Dean Jones as the rabbit and Haley Mills as, as Jessica and, and Kurt Russell as Baby Herman in costumes. I said, well, 
you know, they're going to compromise the premise just a little bit. And they said, well, yeah, you know, cooler heads prevailed. And they went off and trying to do animation live action. And to show you, you know, eventually it was Steven Spielberg who who tilted the, the teeter-totter. But to show you what a difference Steve Spielberg makes in Hollywood, back in 1981 or 82, Roy Disney went to Warner Brothers and said, hey, we're making this live-action animated movie, and we would like to have Bugs Bunny come in and say, you know, what's up, Doc? And uh, walk off screen. Okay, uh, how about that? And Warner Brothers said to, well, uh, to, to Roy Disney, get lost. You know, there's no way that Bugs Bunny is ever going to be, you know, in a Walt Disney movie. That's never going to happen. Just don't even forget about it. So five years later, when Steve Spielberg walks into Warner Brothers and makes essentially the identical request, we, we want to use Bugs Bunny, and he's going to come in and he's going to say, well, Doc, they said, oh, of course, of course, take Bugs. Yes, Stephen, take Bugs. What, a, what about Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner and Porky Pig and, and Yosemite Sam and, and, and Tweety Bird and, and, uh, and Sylvester? Uh, you got to have them, too. So Stephen walks out with all of the Warner Brothers characters for very modest fee. I mean, I could have I could have paid it up my the money I had to make for my paper route. It was very modest fee I had to pay for these characters. The only requirement was that Bugs, being a superstar, had a contract, and Bugs' contract called for Bugs to be in every scene with Mickey Mouse. Anytime Mickey appeared on the screen. Bugs had to be there, too, because they were co-equal superstars, all right? And not only did they have to share the exact same amount of screen time, they had to have the exact same number of words of dialogue. So you can go through and come up and see. But you know, in 1981, they still, they still couldn't pull together. And then a couple of things, and it looked like, it looked like they never would. It looked like they, they would prove me right that you really couldn't make this into a movie. And then in 1980. Five, I believe, all things happened. Roy Disney was uh, was let go. He wasn't let go. He was uh, kind of shunted off into the background, and they brought in Michael Eisner. Uh, Michael Eisner brought in Jeff Katzenberg, whom he'd worked on uh, work with at 20th Century. Uh, he brought in Jeff as the head of Disney Motion Pictures and, and Disney Animation. And when the head of a studio changes like that, the first thing that happens is all of the projects they have under development get thrown out and they start all new projects because the old projects were what got into trouble in the first place. So they threw out every project they'd been working on except for Roger Rabbit. Uh, I mean, everybody realized that they had to do that project. They had to keep that one. So they did. And Michael and Jeff did something that nobody at Disney ever done before. They brought in an outside producer. And that guy, of course, was Steve Spielberg. And Steve had read the book when it came out and always thought it, it would be a fine movie. Always liked it. So Steve came in as producer, and uh, he then picked the director. The director he picked was Bob Zemeckis. Bob had been offered directing assignment uh, back in 1980 or 81, but took a look at it, took a look at Disney and said, you guys will never be able to do this right. So he went off to you know, direct a bunch of unknown movies like Back to the Future, Forrest Gump, and a bunch of other stuff you never heard of. So now he he came back because Steve Spielberg is involved. And, you know, from there, 
there really there really wasn't another hurdle. I mean, once Steve Spielberg, Zemeckis, and especially Jeff Katzenberg got involved, the movie just just rolled along. I, I give Steven a lot of credit. Uh, Bob Zemeckis had the vision, but Jeff Katzenberg was the guy that really made it happen. That he he had publicly come out saying that when when he took over with Disney, he was gonna. He was going to go for singles and doubles and the occasional triple. He was never going to go for the fences. He was never going to make a movie that cost more than $14 million, which was a lot of money back in those days. Maybe, probably more. And Jeffrey didn't blink. He said, okay, just make sure you do it right. And the production budget kept going up, kept going up to 35, 40, 50, 60, 70, finally topped up somewhere around $78 million. And Jeffrey never batted an eye. He kept looking at the at the rushes and kept saying, you know, great, you know, keep going. Just make sure you do it right. And I give him the credit for it because if this movie had failed, I mean, it would have been not just his job, it would have been his career. You know, the movie, movie got produced, uh, got released in 1988. They premiered it at Radio City Music Hall in New York City. Uh, so I was, uh, I was at the premiere. And I was sitting up in the balcony with the VIPs, right? And on my left, I had uh, I had Kathleen Turner, who was the voice of Jessica. And on my right, I had Amy Irving, who was Stephen's wife at the time, and was the singing voice of Jessica because uh, Jess, uh, Kathleen was pregnant when she was supposed to do the song, and either she, she can't sing at all or she didn't have the breath control, but she couldn't sing. So Stephen said to Amy, you know, hey, you, know, you sang in Yentl, you give it a whack. And Amy said, uh, you know, nobody's going to believe that Jessica has one voice when she's singing, one voice when she's talking. And Stephen said, nah, it'll work. And it did. So I'm sitting there between, you know, these two fantasy objects of mine. And I have never actually seen the whole movie all the way through because they were still working on it right up till, till the premiere. And I had never seen my credit on the screen. I had never seen that. So I was going to see my movie completed for the first time. I was going to see my my credit for the first time. And I, I'm thinking to myself, you know, life just doesn't get any better than this. This is as good as life gets. And then life got better because Kathleen leaned over and put her hand on my leg. And she whispered in my ear, she said, Gary, are you excited? And I, I said, Kathleen, you have no idea. <laughs> it sounds like they actually kind of brought you in on the process while they were making this movie. They appreciated my creativity. They asked, you know, they they asked me for advice along the way. I sat in on on some of the some of the production meetings. I, I wrote this book sitting at my kitchen table from like four in the morning until seven thirty every day for a year, right? And and there were times in these movie meetings when I would find myself in a room with thirty five of the most creative people I've ever met in my life. And all of these people are throwing out ideas on how to make my story better. And I'm thinking, you know, if I had had these guys at the kitchen table when I was writing this, I would win the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, they, they let me be involved as much or as little as I wanted. I I went to uh, some of the filming. I It's kind of a little boring for me. Not, not really my thing. I, I did enjoy meeting, uh, you know, Hoskins and uh, Chris Lloyd and... Um, you know, I, they shot the movie in England, and of course, that was a lot of fun. And, and yeah, they seemed to value uh, seemed to value my creativity, and and um, you know, I I I, uh, I was happy about that. 
while the movie is going on, are you still continuing to write? Because that's a long time between when you publish and when this movie actually premieres. I thought that uh, I thought that the Roger Rabbit uh, book was going to be a one-off. You know, spoiler alert here, if you know, in the book, the rabbit dies. Uh, and, of course, Disney changed the story. And people always say to me, are, are you are you upset that Disney changed the story? And I, I say no, because the book is the best possible book that I knew how to write. And the movie is the best possible representation of that book. Uh, the movie's a movie and the book's a book. They kept the premise, they kept the main characters, and they changed the story. And I have no problem with that because, as I'm saying, I didn't think he could film the book anyway. During that period, I did write, but I wasn't writing Roger Rabbit stuff. I was writing more short stories, uh, and I was thinking about what I could do for another, you know, hard science fiction novel. When the movie came out, it was such a success, uh, I started getting request for a sequel sequel novel so you know because because the rabbit had died in the book uh, i started i was i had been writing a, another book that was based in toontown but without the rabbit and then when the movie came out it was such a huge success i said hmm and people said you know how about a sequel i said hmm well that then becomes a creative problem because maybe Three dozen people had read the book, and, and most of them were related to me, my mother and my aunt, you know. But 50 million people had seen the movie. So to the majority of the world, the Disney version of Roger Rabbit is Roger Rabbit. And I had to decide, do I want to, do I want to maintain the kind of dark, moody atmosphere of the book, or the happier, jovial atmosphere of the movie. And I came up with kind of a hybrid that, that works pretty well. Uh, I, I love the word balloons. I continue using those. The, the story is still dark uh, in the sequel novel and still still kind of brooding. Uh, Eddie Valiant is still Eddie Valiant. I think it's more palatable to people who have seen the movie who have never read the book. I later did a third novel, Who Whacked Roger Rabbit, where I kind of went back to the original. And the third novel is much more like the original than the second novel was. Uh, it's very moody, very dark, and uh, the, the characters are much more layered than they were in the second second novel. But I published the second novel, the Who P -P -P Plugged Roger Rabbit, in, I think, 1991, and that, that got a lot of... Uh, a lot of good reviews, did really well. Disney bought the film rights to it. Then I went off and did a whole bunch of other stuff, science fiction novels. I wrote a novel called Space Vulture uh, with my best friend from forever. I mean, we were babies together, and he later became the archbishop, the Catholic archbishop of New Jersey. Uh, but we always shared a mutual love of science fiction, so we collaborated on a science fiction novel called Space Vulture, then a couple of years ago, I uh, I was writing another science fiction novel, and I stumbled across basically an almost complete Toontown novel that I had forgotten about. <laughs> you know, writers, yeah. And uh, I took a look at it, and it was still pretty good. And I had, I had done it about the time I did the first novel, so it had the moodier, uh, the moodier feel to it that the first novel had. And I realized that I could take that and, and insert 
the Roger Jessica characters and make it into the third Roger Rabbit novel, which I did. Well, you mentioned that Disney bought the rights for the sequel. I've read over the years, I mean, because the first movie came out in 88, so it's been... Mm-hmm. 30 years this year. I've read a lot of stories about there being a sequel, but it's never come to fruition. So how close have they gotten in the past? They've gotten pretty close. They, uh, it's more politics than anything else. Everybody wants to, everybody wants a sequel. And the first movie, I get, still get the accounting, the first movie has grossed nearly a billion dollars. It's B with a billion uh, the rule of thumb is that a sequel will generally make three quarters of what the original made. So, seven hundred fifty million is not chump change. Everybody wanted it, but kind of politics just conspired against it. Jeff Katzenberg, who was the big champion of of Roger, uh, left Disney kind of acrimoniously after an argument with, with Michael Eisner. Uh, he went over and started a company with Steve Spielberg. Steve Spielberg controls part of the production rights to Roger. It was part of his deal. So he's not about to do something for Disney that's going to make his partner unhappy and make Disney a lot of money. So that happened. And then Pixar came into the picture, and the Pixar guys kind of took over Disney. They sort of want to do mostly uh, CGI stuff, and they seem to want to use their own characters. They don't seem that interested in the old classic Disney characters, even Mickey Mouse. There were times when all the elements seemed to be in play. Uh, Steven uh, came back and we had a, had a bungalow at the Disney lot. Bob Zemeckis was uh, in good graces with Disney and had a little animation department going there. Uh, Frank Marshall and Kathleen Turner had come back and had a contract with Disney. And they were the producers, of course, on the first Roger movie and, uh, they said, hey, you know, we want to produce the second Roger Rabbit movie. And everything, uh, Don Hahn, the, the original uh, line producer, came back. And everything seemed to be in line. But then it just kind of fell apart with the Pixar deal. And it's a roller coaster. It goes up, it goes down. You know, right now it's kind of somewhere in the middle. I can't predict. Well, how about you? What have you been working on lately? I've got a 12-episode animated TV series that I've, I've done called uh, Toontown Hardboiled. And it's set in a jazz club in Toontown. Uh, and uh, that will be showing sometime next year. Yeah, I'm working with uh, a producer to produce either a TV series or a movie that will then become a TV series based on my science fiction novel, Space Vulture. I've written a bunch of other science fiction novels, uh, like Great Show, uh, Typical Day, I've got a bunch of movies in the works, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, I'll give you a little tickle here that will be of great interest to Roger Rabbit fans, but I I can't talk about them because the details are still being worked out. But it's going to be good stuff. Going to be good stuff. I do keep busy, and uh, I've got one other novel that I'm working on, different from Toontown. It's not set in Toontown. It is as unique in its own way, as Toontown was. It is good for me and bad for me. It's good for me because it's just mind-blowingly creative, and I just love working on it. But it's like Toontown. Uh, in order to write Toontown, I kind of had to go to Toontown every day and live there and talk about what I saw, and it was it was draining, physically, physically and mentally draining. It took a lot of time, and this novel is the same. 
it, it is very draining physically and mentally for me. So I'm working through it, but uh, I've been working on it for a year, and I'm guessing maybe another year and a half before I finish it. But it's going to be a it's going to be a humdinger. So is the best place for people to keep up with you your website? Yeah, uh, uh, www.garywolf.com. And uh, the, the best way to follow me is on Facebook. You follow me on Facebook because I publish, I, I post on Facebook almost every day. And uh, I, I do, you know, weird stuff about Roger and Jessica. And uh, I post a lot of pictures of Roger, Jessica cosplayers and just things that kind of tickle my fancy. Yeah. Mr. Wolf, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. Oh, you got to call me Gary. Mr. Wolf's my father. back and we were talking about who framed Roger Rabbit. So did either of you guys get a chance to read who censored Roger Rabbit? I did not, but I, I kind of want to. It is a phenomenal book. I really enjoyed it. And I didn't think I was going to enjoy it nearly as much as I did. It's very different from who framed Roger Rabbit to the point where Roger Rabbit dies early on in the proceedings. You know, who killed Roger Rabbit? Yeah, this is a murder mystery of who killed Roger Rabbit. And it is really good in that way. And the characters are not cartoons, they're comics. So everything that they say is in a word balloon. It it feels very much like uh, a movie that we did last year, Who Wants to Kill Jesse? Where, like, you would not be able to read what a character is saying if they're standing at a 90 degree angle from you that you have to like move around or take their word bubble and move it to you so you can actually read what they're saying. And as they produce word bubbles, the other world word bubbles will fall to the ground. So you can see like the whole conversation of what they've said, which is pretty terrific. And yeah, the, the there's a fake Roger rabbit. Like they can, conjure up uh doppelgangers basically and they will um they use them as stunt people because toons can die in this world without the dip and there's no judge doom character whatsoever but yeah it is a really good book the sequel isn't so good like gary wolf was saying in the interview it is a sequel to the movie not to his own book but then i need to read the third one because i think that comes back to the characters being cartoons again or comics again, rather than cartoons. And it's interesting because they'll have these characters and they might be three dimensional. They might not be like Parappa the Rappa. They'll, they'll pose and then a photographer will take a picture and that becomes the comic strip. So we are not even talking about cartoons whatsoever in this. It's all comics. You just reference Parappa the Rappa. I think about Parappa the Rappa every day of my life. Yeah, I know. I gotta believe! My question is, since you did read it, and I have not... I, I've been, When we did a podcast on this, I told myself, I'm gonna read it. And then I never got around to reading it. Does it satiate the need for 
perspective viewers like myself who are like, I wish the film was darker. I think it does. And it really holds you the murder mystery, the hard-boiled stuff a lot more. And there isn't the lunacy. And Roger Rabbit, he's a frustrated character. And you don't necessarily know if you can trust him or not. There are times where he will outright omit things, a.k.a. lie, to the Eddie Valiant character. And Eddie Valiant is not – his brother did not die from a tune. He is the only one who will work with tunes rather than some of the other people that are out there. And he's got a, 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 a tune on the police force who's one of these humanoid tunes and really does not like Eddie whatsoever. So it's very interesting. The politics are there. It all mixes together really well. Interesting. Yeah, because that was what I had assumed watching this film, that the inclusion of Spielberg, the inclusion of Zemeckis, the inclusion of it being under Buena Vista and Amblin injected a certain level of childlike wonderment into the film that was not there with the source material, which is perfectly fine because, again, this film, if you've got Mickey and Minnie and Bugs Bunny, it's not going to be the book. It just can't be. And by having it in that universe where Bugs and Mickey exist, they got the film made. I'm not sure the film would have gotten made if it hadn't included those characters. Or just if they had had a whole bunch of knockoffs where you're just like, oh, well, that is Mickey Mouse, but it looks like, the, you know, it's Mortimer Mouse or something like that. Or that is this guy. You know, it's like having, you know, Pierce Patchett look kind of like Walt Disney, like those kind of things. The thing that is good also about Wolf's book is that it gives you this world, it paints a picture, and it doesn't ever make you question, or at least I didn't question like the logistics of everything. Like we've already had a conversation in here about are there guys who go to Toontown for sex? That's like one of the things that I, you know, not that particular question, but there are questions when you watch who framed Roger rabbit, it makes sense that the tunes are all kind of contained in that ghetto and that they're all there for this stuff. But it also makes me wonder, like, are there tunes like, in New York City, in France, and here, over there. And that's also some of the questions that came up when I watched The Happy Time Murders, is that something about the movie makes me question the reality so much that I get distracted and I can't even really pay attention to what's going on in The Happy Time Murders because I just keep thinking, well, why are these puppets homeless why is this puppet a murderer you know what happens when you get a kidney transfer from a puppet is that just a ball of yarn there are so many questions that i can't really concentrate on the actual stuff that's going on in the movie the happy time murders is a mean-spirited who framed roger rabbit but not in a bad way i actually enjoyed it a lot more than i assumed i was going to i mean having heard everything last year when it came out that it was you know, it's not funny it's awful it it's a you know it's a it's a pox upon the Henson brand. They should never make another adult film. I couldn't disagree more. It's it's weird. It's a like you said, Mike. It's a film kind of without rules in a way. It like makes you question the rules more than them giving you kind of an idea like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where it's like they are tunes. They live in a ghetto. There you go. I kind of like that about the Happy Time Murders that they kind of play fast and loose with everything, but it's. Not who framed Roger Rabbit in any stretch of the imagination. It's just kind of this really mean-spirited comedy that 
also has a little bit of the noir thing to it. I really, really disliked this movie. I felt like it wasn't really funny at all. I I felt like I was watching something on USA, but not. it wasn't even fun enough to be on up all night. It was just like at 7 p.m. I felt like a lot of the jokes were saying the obvious mean thing or doing the obvious gross thing and really not looking for any other options. And I, ugh, the, I laughed at the two parts that I thought were really funny were if you made it this far, you knew there were spoilers. I loved the scene where they send in little bitty ankle biter dogs to tear a puppet apart. And I love the scene where they find a dead puppet body under the, boardwalk and they ask people to turn away because it's going to be gross and then they ring it out i legitimately laughed at those i thought they were great but other than that i felt like they just went for low-hanging fruit like silly string cum boy those are three words i never thought i'd hear together in a sentence yet 2019 here we are it, it, look, it, it's like that National Lampoon's Vacation reboot, th- remake thing, sequel that they made. It's mean-spirited, and honestly, it is, it is like you said, Axel. It's it's completely low-hanging fruit. But at the same time, for me, like, eh, you know, it's an entertaining diversion for an hour and a half, but I'm never going to watch it again. It was kind of cool to see puppets doing things that puppets have not done in a Henson movie. Yes, Meet the Feebles exists, I know that. But this is a Henson film. Like, they were one step away from... And I, the disappointment that I had in Happy Time Murders was the thing that I appreciated about Who Framed Roger Rabbit is they never mentioned the Muppets or Sesame Street in Happy Time Murders. But they mentioned Goofy and Mickey and all that in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And I, I don't... I'm assuming it's a tarnishment of the brand thing now... I mean, Sesame Street, what, they wanted to sue the Happy Time Murders production because it's like, this isn't Sesame Street. No Sesame on this street or something to that effect. And I, it might have played better if they had actually tried to root it in a universe where those things exist as opposed to just pretending like none of that ever happened. Well, I believe Jim Henson really wanted to do something more adult. And I, I don't think he would have been as gonzo about it as this, but it would have been interesting if he would have gotten his chance to see what he would have come up with. Disney owns the Muppets and the children's television workshop got all of the, the Sesame street Muppets. I think he tried to keep them separate. So I'm guessing they didn't feel like playing nice. Yeah, I think you're right. And yeah, it was mostly just the poster that people were going on about, but it's funny because the problem that I have with the Happy Time Murders is the same problem that I have with almost every Melissa McCarthy movie that I've ever seen, which is the riffing and the whole idea of, hey, either feed her or she'll come up with a bunch of funny lines and then we'll keep too many of them. And it's like, where's the good script writing? You know, I want to see the script for this. I know it was out on the blacklist back in like 2008. So 10 years before the movie finally actually came out, who makes this decision of letting Melissa McCarthy just riff? And it really bothers me. And it kind of infects the whole rest of the movie. It feels like there are probably scenes with the puppeteers too, where they're like, just go for it and come up with funny lines and we'll keep some of them. And eventually we'll keep too many of them and we'll, just drag these jokes into the ground. 
Who is the one letting Melissa McCarthy riff? Paul Feige. That's who. That Ghostbusters 2016 movie, the uh, like the cut of it that's like five hours long because all it is is just them riffing for five hours. Oh, it's so not good. It is just not good. I have nothing against women in comedy. There are plenty of women that are hilarious comedians. Melissa McCarthy is not one well, of them. Well, she can be good, she is not. She's not very funny. She can be, but her overwhelming body of work would point in the opposite direction of her being funny. I would kind of agreeing with you, kind of not. I feel like when you see her on Saturday Night Live, more of those hit than miss. And I think it's because it's shorter and she can't just go off on all those tangents. If you have somebody there editing or directing that can just say no, I bet she would be a lot funnier and turn in something more. I mean, look, Bridesmaids, she played a bit part in that movie. And that movie, as much as I'm not a huge fan of Paul Feige, that movie's not bad. No, it's not bad at all. And she got nominated for an Oscar for that movie. Don't forget that, which I... Don't know how that happened, but um, she's not bad in that movie. I think Melissa McCarthy is, like you said, Axel, she's good in small doses, which would be the SNL formula of like, we've got this little five, seven minute skit. Let's do this. But when it's like a whole movie and it's just like her dropping F-bombs and and saying, you know, just riffing, it's not great. And there are a lot of actors like that. She needs someone who who gets exactly when to tell her. Yes, and when to tell her no. Kristen Wiig is one of those actresses. Or they just need a good editor in the editing room, or a better script, and you say, you hold to this fucking script and no admin. Yeah, stop riffing. This isn't the riff fest. Stop wasting people's time by sitting and doing the same scene 30 times and coming up with more increasingly ridiculous things to come up with. You don't have to prove to us that you're funny. We know that you're you're you got here. You're in the 0.01% of people that are making the money in Hollywood that you're making. We know that you must have some kind of talent. Hey, that's why I bought a ticket, man. That's why I rented the DVD. You know, I know you're funny. So let me see you be funny rather than try to be funny and maybe hit it. But most of the time, miss. Stop meandering around the comedy. Can I bring up? Just for a little bit, because I want to meet the Feebles. Yeah, feel free. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember liking it quite a bit. And it is super rude, but in a great way. Meet the Feebles, directed by Oscar winner Peter Jackson. That makes me smile. Is the story of a puppet show and what goes on behind the scenes. It's kind of, it's basically the Muppets. The first time I saw it, I thought it was pretty clever. And the second time I saw it, I realized that I have kind of a deep-seated fear of Muppets. And this really brought it out, because this is the most horribly mean, hateful behavior that Muppets can do. And I don't know why it works as well as it does for me, but Meet the Feebles makes me laugh at the same time as it makes me kind of kind of want to shut it off and i love it for that don't forget peter jackson mentioned meet the feebles in his oscar acceptance speech but meet the feebles yeah it's it is the film the happy time murders wishes it was but like no mainstream studio would make meet the feebles it's so mean-spirited and i like that again with meet the feebles i'm not questioning the rules i don't care what happens outside of that theater Like, we see people come in from the outside. I don't care what the outside world looks like. I'm just concerned about what's in the, you know, what's happening on this film. And again, Happy Time Murders, I'm just like, 
okay, well, this is Los Angeles. What What's going on in Burbank? What's going on in San Francisco? What's going on, you know, all over the world? I want to know, like, are there French puppets? How did puppets begin? When did they come from? It's that bright syndrome where you're just like, you're trying to create this world. You're giving us enough information to make me question what the fuck is really going on here. Oh, God. Uh, pox upon thee, a pox upon thee. God. Sorry to bring up Max Landis on the show. Is he like Candyman? If you mention his name three times, he pops up behind you. Oh, Wait, his father guys. cuts you in half with a helicopter blade while carrying two Vietnamese-styled actors. I think the world is a better place if Max Landis gets mentioned less and less and makes less uh, hashtag Me Too movies to try to save his image, quotations image. One of the things that I joked around with with Chris before we started recording was, hey, why don't we just go out to the Roger Rabbit trivia page on IMDb and read every item? There's a lot of apocryphal stuff about who framed Roger Rabbit. And one of those that I found is that, you know, I brought up Chinatown earlier to the point even like while I was watching the film that there's some similarities between the car that Jessica Rabbit drives and the car that Evelyn Mulray drives in Chinatown. But some people have put out this idea that there's going to be a third Chinatown movie and it was going to be called Cloverleaf. Ooh, just like the company in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Now, I don't know where that came from, and I even found an interview with Robert Town, who wrote both The Two Jakes and Chinatown, and he said, uh, no, I don't know where the title Cloverleaf came from. This is, He's talking about the third installment of this uh, series. It was actually supposed to be called Giddies versus Giddies. It took place in 1968 and was about the era when no-fault divorce had become legal in California. So nothing to do with the dismantling of the public transportation system. Again, I don't know how much stock I put in Robert Town, but he is the guy that wrote these movies. So, yeah. So I'm just saying, be careful before you make your next YouTube video of 10 things you definitely didn't know about Roger Rabbit because we are way too superior than you are. And check your facts, please. Ike drop. So ultimately... Are you guys going to be rushing out to see Who Framed Roger Rabbit again soon, or what? What? what's your take on the movie? Does it ultimately fail or succeed? Who Framed Roger Rabbit is one of those films that I watch every couple years. I don't watch it every year, but I watch it probably every two years, and I watch it, I enjoy it, and then I don't forget about it, but I don't think about it. And that's not an indication or a condemnation of the quality of the film, it's just... It's a film that's good. It's fun. It's interesting. It hasn't aged particularly well. There are some fun bits contained within, but it's like a Snickers bar equivalent of a film. It's fun for a while. It satisfies the need for something to have on in the background or something that's kind of fun, but not over the top, but also somewhat serious. And then ultimately you forget about it and you move on and you go watch something else that will satisfy you more so than Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It's a fun movie. Bob Hoskins is great. No one's going to question that. It has one of the better, you know, film villains of all time. I would contend that Judge Doom is a fantastic film villain. But yeah, I mean, it's a film that I've seen, you know, probably a dozen times and I'll watch it again in two years and I'll think the same thing. I, I don't think that, that it's I don't think that talking about it critically has tarnished my enjoyment of it. But yeah, it's a film that watching it now you know, 29 as opposed to 27 as opposed to 
20. It's a film that it's, it's, it's a fun movie, but that's kind of it. It definitely succeeds. I think it's one of those films that it's legitimate, great film. It's a good thing to kind of watch with the family, depending on their age. I don't need to see it again. I'm glad I saw it, but I'm not going to keep remining it for more levels. I think it was good for what it was. You guys will be surprised that, much like The Grinch, my heart has grown three sizes this day. I actually, the last time I watched this, I finally found stuff to enjoy in it. Because the first time, I did not like it. Thinking about it again, you know, years later, I was just like, that movie is horrible, it's no good. And then even when I tried to rewatch it again just a couple months ago... I just found it really super shrill, and I think it was around the time of Benny the Cab scene. I was just like, this is too much. I'm really just not enjoying this. I ended up turning it off, but I watched it again over the weekend, and I actually found some things to enjoy with it. And so I don't hate this movie, and I actually found some things to laugh at. And I agree with your assessment as far as the the acting in this movie. Very, very good. Charles Fleischer... I really like what he's doing in here. The voice does get to me after a while, but it is perfect for who the character is and what the character is. And yes, Christopher Lloyd just absolutely knocks it out of the park as far as being one of the great screen villains. And one thing I do want to point out, if anyone goes to Disneyland, they actually still have the Who Framed Roger Rabbit ride there, which I find kind of bizarre in a way. I'm not sure they might be, they probably will end up bulldozing Mickey's Toontown where you can go meet Mickey and all the characters are kind of in, you can go wait in lines to meet them as opposed to, you know, running up to them and grabbing him by the arm and saying, I want to get my picture with you and my kid. But there's a Who Framed Roger Rabbit ride, which in my mind means that Disney hasn't fully abandoned this property. Which I find bizarre, considering how in this day and age, Disney is this multifaceted company that it was not in 1988. I was hearing for years and years that there was going to be a sequel to this, and then finally tracking down a couple different versions of what that sequel would be, it was actually going to be a prequel. The title that was bandied about that I saw, well, I saw two different things. One was the Toon Patrol, I think it was, which isn't that the name of what the weasels drive? I thought so. There's the Tomb Patrol, and then there was another one that was called Who Discovered Roger Rabbit. And I didn't make it all the way through Who Discovered Roger Rabbit, but within the first five pages, it started to repeat a lot of the same scenes from the Tomb Patrol script. It was written a year later, and I think it was just basically a rewrite of it. The Tomb Patrol would have basically been like two things jammed together. One of them, surprisingly enough, was the jerk... Because it starts off with Roger Rabbit turning 18 and his parents tell him that he's not a real person, that he is a toon. So it totally reminded me of Navin Johnson when he learns that he's white. It's your birthday and it's time you knew. Navin, you're not a natural born child. I'm not. You were left on our doorstep. But we raised you like you were one of us. You mean I'm going to stay this color? (laughs) And then he tries to hitchhike across the country and go to Hollywood. (laughs) 
I'm hitchhiking. How far are you going? St. Louis, how far are you going? To the end of this fence. Okay. And he meets this character named Richie, and Richie's afraid to fly, so it's kind of the same thing. He actually runs into Eddie Valiant at one point, which is kind of a, you know, ha-ha, little nod kind of thing. And then the movie suddenly takes this weird turn and becomes a World War II movie. I told you that we were going to talk about World War II, and here we go. It becomes World War II, and they end up sending cartoon characters in to fight World War II. They don't want to kill one, though, which is very odd um, or kind of wholesome, depending on how you want to go about it. Um, but so they all end up getting rounded up and put into a special camp, uh, not a concentration camp, because this is the good guys, this is the Americans. You know, they only put Japanese people in concentration camps. They put these cartoons in this concentration camp, and Richie, the human, is there because he doesn't want to fly, he doesn't want, you know, he's afraid of heights and all this kind of stuff, so they put him in there, too, with all these rejects. He and, I can't remember the name of the the turtle, the one that Bugs Bunny races against, who does that whole, like, Oh, uh-huh. uh, yep, that guy, him and Blackie the cat from the Tex Avery cartoons, those two, Roger and Richie, escape from the camp and they go to rescue Jessica, who at this point is like a very nice girl, the very plain looking. And then at one point she finally dresses up like just rabbit and they're just like, Oh, well, holy shit. She actually cleans up really well. They go to rescue her and this other girl, Wendy from not Peter Pan's Wendy from a very dastardly Nazi agent who was pretending to run a radio station in the U S and they uh, have Jessica. She's sending out these messages like an Axis version of Tokyo Rose the guy who ran the radio station, meanwhile, is plotting on sending a rocket to Malta and killing FDR, Stalin, and Churchill. So, yeah, it's kind of crazy. And then, of course, the black cat, his superpower is that if he walks in front of anybody, something falls on them, which is one of my favorite Tex Avery cartoons. Uh, hey, shorty. Dog trouble? <laughs> my card. What do you say, okay? That's great, pal. I will now demonstrate. I just brought their pet like this. And bingo, they get bad luck. And if you ever need me, yes, whistle. But, yeah, it's absolutely nuts and then eventually all the cartoons show up and begin to murder all these nazis so it's a great story i'm very surprised that they didn't make this movie because to me it was actually fairly entertaining weird but entertaining that also sounds horrifying you wanted to know the rules of this universe here you go you can murder people as long as they're only nazis i'm just picturing peg leg pete from the mickey mouse cartoons with just this bloodthirsty grin and a baseball bat like the bear jew from inglorious bastards closing in on somebody i'm imagining mickey mouse with a helmet cut out with his spot for his ears oh that's adorable until you realize that he's pulling a pin on a grenade and stuffing it into a nazi's mouth and going oh i'm mickey mouse and then smashing it down their throat yeah it's real funny until mickey mouse starts blowing people up 
Well, the whole idea, you know, going back to Toontown, the whole idea of walking into a room and everything is anthropomorphic, that's kind of scary. The bear in the room on this is that cartoons are terrifying if you start to think about them actually being around you. Sure. Right? The the chair that you're sitting on right now could end up talking to you, and it's just like, oh, that's kind of freaking me out. You sure look sparkly, Pee-wee. Thank you, Jerry. So do you. You always do. I might say the same of you. Jerry, I've been teasing you a lot lately, and I want you to know I'm sorry. Come over here and sit on me. Another thing that we didn't talk about, and I don't know if this is pertinent or not, but... The scene with Jessica Rabbit where she falls out of Benny the Cab that the animators, I thought, I think they probably thought they were a little cheeky. So they were like, maybe should we should give Jessica Rabbit a vagina. Well, I hear different stories about that, too, as far as, oh, that's just your dirty mind going and that she was wearing underwear. So do I. I'm sure that there's a screen cap of whatever that's supposed to be out there. But the thing is, I don't have a laser disc player, so I can't. You know, we can't confirm or deny it. I just pictured Chris pausing his old VHS copy and running up with a dry erase marker and, like, adding it in. Back and to the left. Uh, It's right here. Back it up, and here it is. Or the scene where baby Herman goes underneath a woman's dress and comes back with some drool on his face. But, you know, that one's a little bit more salacious. Which, again, I'm perfectly fine with in the scheme of this movie because it does need to have that mix like we talked about before. Yeah, the scene in the script of Jessica Rabbit singing at the club is interesting because the guys around here, I think the guys are both human and cartoon, even though it's weird because in the club in the movie, it is a strictly human, like, cartoons can only be behind the bar serving people or, you know, up on stage kind of thing. They cannot be patrons, but in the script the people and the cartoon characters watching her are acting like the wolf from the red riding hood the little red riding hood cartoon where it's like you know you become flat as a board or you whistling or all those kind of crazy things that that wolf is doing in that tex avery cartoon so yeah that's kind of a strange thing and we don't think about that right when we're watching the movie we don't realize that the cartoons are only serving humans and that you know only humans are the ones allowed to drink and have a good time One other thing that I wanted to bring up is that, I don't know if you guys remember this, but it was a thing for a while where they were putting out, Disney was putting out cartoons of Roger Rabbit in front of other movies. Like Dick Tracy. Yeah. Which is funny because a lot of this movie actually reminds me of Dick Tracy at times, the whole, you know, 1940s throwback kind of thing. Well, that was in full swing in the late late 80s, early 90s, was it not? The Zoot Suit Revival, you got the film like The Rocketeer, you have The Mask. Now, films like that were bringing back that like 40s Zoot Suit thing. Even Batman, when you think about it. But yeah, they were trying real hard to make that a thing, and finally they said this isn't a thing. It's not going to happen. So they quit doing it. But yeah, they had three cartoons in front of three different movies. Actually, more than that, depending on where you were at, apparently. And then on different VHS tapes and yada, yada, yada. But I only remember Roller Coaster Rabbit because it was in front of Dick Tracy. They said, hey, Pachuco, knock it off. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. 
babe, right with me, give you a discount. I'll carry you my arms if you prefer. It's Igo. Don't you rickshaw guys work for tits? Is a hundred bucks enough? <coughs> Never trust a whore. <coughs> Can't you forget who's holding the aces here, pal? I'm in deep shit, Daniel. Somebody got there before me. So, but it's all very suspicious. Ah, shut up! I kill for a lot less. He was born June 6, 1966. Look out! Right. Comparison to the Chinese, we walk upside down. My cat and I have watched over you since your birth. The Chinese object you are holding contains the story of your life and the task divine will has entrusted to you. You're not leaving this place until you've told me everything I want to know. Spin three murders on you in a flash. I think I know where it is. What have you got in mind? I'm not sure. Nothing fits. Nothing makes any sense. Joanna? You scream, I swear to God, I'm gonna stick you with this thing, all right? Found it in the gutter. I'm sure you're familiar with AIDS. I only told the police what I saw. Then I'll touch it. It's only a cat. Ah! I shall kill you. You're right! That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Sergio Martino's batshit insane American Tiger. If you want to watch that beforehand, check out the shitty VHS transfer over on Amazon Prime. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Axel and Chris. Axel, what is the latest with you, sir? I am still working on my own podcast, which is Super True Stories. My friend Dave and I watch the worst, oddest most controversial documentaries we can find for free and we critique them we make fun of them figure out what exactly we're supposed to believe and i believe in our next episode we're going back into bigfoot territory which bigfoot documentaries have a lot to unpack they're kind of amazing aren't they they make me ask questions, but I wasn't as concerned about the Bigfoot hunters as I was concerned about the people who were hunting mushrooms in a short we watched. The mushroom hunter people seemed frightening in the way that Hannibal Lecter might help you analyze their behavior. And Chris, what is happening with you, sir? Still doing the Culture Cast over at culturecast.com. Uh, Eric and I talk about movies twice a week. Sometimes we talk about new stuff. Sometimes we tread the cinema path less trodden with some interesting stuff. Sometimes it's a little mainstream. Sometimes it's not. You'll have to go check that out over at culturecast.com. I also do a podcast with you, Mike, called The Kolchak Tapes, where we talk about Kolchak once a month. And we've been doing that for, oh, God, going on like two years now. And also you and I started up another podcast with a good friend of ours, father Malone, where we talk about twilight zone, 1985. And we kind of lucked into that one with the show rebooting, uh, earlier this month. We are sure to get ones of listeners tuning in. I'm the ones I'm the ones. Well, we appreciate you listening to us, Axel. Thank you. 
Thanks again, guys, for being on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Thank you.
the V, ear the V, and that's all, folks. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.